Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sammy Roberts and I'm joined today by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, it's the best games of 2007 episode. How are you feeling about taking a time warp back to that particular year? I'm looking forward to it. This was a, a very happy year for me. Going over these games uh, brought back lots of nostalgic joy, a lot of happy memories, a, a very good time, a great time for games. Um, I actually found it quite difficult making my list because it was such a, an embarrassment of riches in twenty in 2007. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to hearing... Uh, hearing your playstation perspective yeah it's going to be a good one um so for those who haven't necessarily listened to our best games of 2006 episode me and matthew have basically plotted to every couple of months we're going to do an episode based on a particular year we'll tell a bunch of magazine anecdotes which is um you know part of what we do on this podcast but also uh try and like capture the sense of the time in terms of gaming what was going on um, we won't talk about the wider cultural stuff, like um, Heroes being the big TV show of this year. That won't um, <laughs> come it? up much. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, I think it was. I remember watching Heroes this summer and, and it being like save the cheerleader, save the world, being everywhere. Um, but wow. um, yeah, uh, exciting. Clearly, our memories aren't as good as um, maybe we thought. But um, yeah, so the idea is that it'll be a similar mix of stories from the time, followed by a top ten list. Me and Matthew will alternate top ten lists. Um, I suspect we have very different lists this time, which is quite exciting. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was the same with 2006, wasn't it? Because um, mm. you and I just both have slightly different backgrounds, right, when it comes to, you know, what we played when we were young and how that fed into the jobs we did. Yeah, there's, I'd say there's enough of an age difference between us that it, it makes quite a big difference in terms of gaming diet. Yeah, I think you're I think you're probably right. There's also um, the fact that I my, the PS2 was my main sort of console um, in the years prior to this, um, yeah. to getting a job on um, a magazine, which I'll talk about in this episode. Overall, then, Matthew, what are your kind of like thoughts when you looked at the games of 2007? What did you um, What did you think? Uh, well, I thought this was a pretty amazing year. A lot of very big games happened, and a lot of big trends were set in motion. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll cover some of the specific games in our in our top ten list, but I felt like there were some things that really defined what the next generation was going to look like in terms of 360 and PS3. And I was sort of amazed at how many of these things happened at once because in my mind it was a much slower process. But when I was looking over the list, I was like, "Holy cow! A lot of people did a lot of good work this year." <laughs> mm. Yeah, that was it was really the feeling that like this is the um where the HD era of games properly sort of uh comes to life and Yeah. You get good games on all formats, I would say, particularly Xbox had an amazing year this year. Um yeah. but then um maybe uh, maybe Matthew um you thought the best uh, the best games came from elsewhere, who knows. Um it was a good Nintendo year, 2007. Yeah, that's something we will cover. We will, um, like with the previous episode, we'll go through what all the console manufacturers were doing in um, in this year, in our um, first section uh, coming up. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk about what was going on with PS3, 360, and Wii, and also um, DS and PSP a little bit too. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, Matthew, 2007, talk me through this. So, this was like your first full year on Endgamer, right? What was that like? Yeah, so I'd kind of got over my very initial like i can't believe i'm i'm able to do this so i had a few months at the end of 2006 to kind of get you know get through that and deal with that and then this was more into the a, a kind of growing in confidence being able to kind of contribute a bit more to the magazine i was a little nervous to begin with so it took me a while to kind of like sort of speak up and and kind of 
try and have a bigger impact. The one thing I really remember from this year, and it's something I'd sort of forgotten um, until I really thought about it, was uh, Endgame used to have a DVD, used to come with this thing, which was called NGTV. And I'd completely forgotten that I recorded all the retro footage for this, which was quite a big chunk of time every month, Hmm. Um, definitely for the first half of this year. And I am terrible at, like, NES and SNES games. I'm really, really bad. And, like, so my lasting, (laughs) a a big memory from this time, kind of a retroactive memory that popped into my head anyway, was um, recording the DVD sessions which would be me and another member of staff talking over the retro footage i'd recorded and it just being totally shit and the other person being completely flabbergasted at how bad it was and it became like an on-running joke that our free dvd every month was just like a like a montage of me dying in the first 30 seconds of every nes game Hmm. because it was a a virtual console roundup um (laughs) so i think i like my magazine persona really solidified quite quickly as just this sort of like totally inept goon, at least with the readers, which I'd sort of forgotten that I went through that phase and that was my relationship with the readers on Endgamer for a while. Which which was odd. <laughs> yeah, I sort of um I have a memory of working on the DVD as well and it being like, Oh, it's t- it's D V D caption time and being sent like a big sheet of uh, fill in all of these captions about these games and um, it was so tedious to do that by the time I went on to uh, an Xbox magazine several years later, me and Simon Miller, the editor, used to have a race to do the entire captions in 10 minutes between us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was about like about 800 words each. Um, so it was like proper like stream of consciousness madness. And I think if anyone who has like DVDs from mags from this time lying around, you'll find all of them are kind of like self-aware about how fraught the process of making the DVD is. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing, Matthew, is you posted a video from yourself um, in 2007, you and the Endgamer team, on um, Twitter last night before we recorded this. Um, yeah. The camera sort of goes across the editorial floor, gets to the end of like the um, the sort of like row of desks, and it's like, oh, who's this fetus on the end playing the Wii? And it was uh, <laughs> it was you. Yeah, I I looked very, very young uh, when I started. I've aged massively in about the last six years, um, but for ages I was just this sort of scrawny beanpole. Yeah, that's that's mad, that video. I think that's actually from the very end of 2006. I think that might be just before Christmas, if I remember mm. correctly. But I love it because it's, it's such a snapshot of the time. Like He comes through the doors and there's like Games Master sitting there and... Uh, you know, Ed. You know, he comes through a door, and there's like Margaret Robinson, who was who was the editor of Edge. Um, you've got Edge sitting at their dark end of the office, which I think I've talked about on this podcast before, yeah. um, where they took all the lights out. <laughs> so it, it really made me laugh, actually, because when I was looking at it, I was thinking, actually, it's a lot more illuminated than I remember. But it's just because the brightness of their screens was like lighting up the darkness of the of the you know, it was basically reflecting off the roof. Um, <laughs> yeah uh so yeah it was quite a yeah quite a fun time i was i was trying to like so much of my memories of endgamer like tied to where we were working in the office because it wasn't Mm. just like working with the particular team it was the kind of teams around you that kind of influenced you as well and that was right at the start where we used to sit next to an official windows magazine 
which obviously wasn't like a laugh riot. But then, uh, you know, a bit later we got moved and we got to sit next to like Xbox World, which had, you know, Tim Weaver, formerly of N64. So that was, uh, yeah, a lot a lot more fun after that. It was, yeah, it was good. A bit of a nostalgia rush. You should check it out. It's mostly my old boss, Greener, wheezing as he walks upstairs. <laughs> I did notice is... that and thought, same, big mood, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if that was on the second floor of Key House, I mean, you'd love to take the lift, but you would be judged. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'd still take the lift anyway, probably, but... um, Nice! Back when going to an office is a thing you could do. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, um, it's funny, actually, because I realise I don't have much um, in the way of paraphernalia, you know, from the time that really tells the story. Like, there's the the odd photo of a colleague here or there on Facebook that I've got, but... Mm. I think I had a bunch of videos when I was testing the PSP's camera in my um, working on play, but um, now they are lost to time. So um, yeah, um. yeah, it kind of ha- it kind of happens. It's weird. I, I guess at the back of your head, you think, well, we've got the magazine, which is kind of a record of what's happening, so we don't need other stuff. But you know, I've got yeah, I've got a few a few cherished photos. I just wish I'd taken more photos of everyone mm. of of things because it you know. The workspace was quite fun and had a lot of like weird stuff and lots of in jokey stuff and I wish I'd kept more of it. You know, like there was a lot of um like junk which kind of appeared in a magazine many times. I wish I'd sort of stolen it. A bit like whenever they ask actors what they stole from film sets and they always <laughs> really regret they didn't steal like the ring from Lord of the Rings or whatever. Um I wish was- I'd stolen the plastic truck that came with the truck game (laughs) yeah like it's um, not not as killer a piece of iconography (laughs) yeah i think i did end up with a gamecube out of the um last office refurb um like uh that was good like it must have been from the end gamer days like it was a gamecube that had the component cable slot so very precious uh item right um yeah but uh, there was like a there was like a pyramid of gamecubes in that office for a long time Um, it was a beautiful thing to behold um Yeah, so um, Matthew, should I tell the story of how I got into games media? Cause, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you, you you hadn't started in two thousand and six, so mm, yeah, tell so, us a story. I'll sit back and enjoy. Okay, sure. So, as mentioned in the previous episode, um, I uh, sort of fluffed my education by playing Dynasty Warriors three instead of revising. Um, <laughs> which you know it happens. What can I say? Um, I uh, yeah, I, I I think like um, in a larger sense though, I was just very disillusioned with college generally like i felt like i've been railroaded into doing certain subjects that i hated and then apart from english there wasn't a single one i really enjoyed um mm. and like uh, there are a couple that were quite badly taught i thought I a couple of bad teachers but it doesn't really matter in retrospect but at the time i was basically just working at a convenience store and waiting for something like my dad was like you have to get a job somewhere anywhere and mm. i was working full time not I, no, I was working part time in this convenience store and it was it was all right um i thought a couple of um <laughs> shoplifting uh, sort of thieves um Whoa, one, one i saw yeah one i sort of knocked over there was a little door by the counter um by, and um the um counter was by the exit and this dude was running out with some beer and i just opened the door as he was walking past and knocked him over with it and just went whoops because i thought oh maybe the police could get me if i if i physically contact him the police right. could probably do me, but if I just like hit him with the the door of the counter, then it'll probably be fine. And it was. I snatched a beer from him, and that was a very heroic day. Um, nice. But you'll be I thought shocked. You were going to say he was running, and he couldn't work out which was the exit, the main door or the little door. 
<laughs> yeah, he runs into what he thinks is the exit. It's actually like the stock room. Or um, <laughs> he walks into an exact replica of the room and I'm still stood there. And I'm like, ah, got you, mate. You're in my uh, the night- MC Escher-esque nightmare now. It's all a little bit being John Malkovich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, I won't dwell on any of that because it's, it's uh, irrelevant and um, pointless uh, information. But the, um, the what happened is I was basically just thinking, well, I'd like to do something good. I'm probably going to go back to college or... It'd be it would be nice to have a good job. It was definitely I was definitely like um, lucky that I got to wait about six months between ending college and um, basically my mum finding this ad for Imagine Publishing's games portfolio in a local recruitment paper. It was very fortuitous. It's the first time she'd ever bought this paper, and she was like, "Have you seen this this job here? Like, they want staff writers for multiple magazines." So that increased my chances of um, getting a shout. Wow. Yeah, and so. Um, they didn't actually say which magazines they, they were um, advertising for. So I kind of just had a punt and said, well, I read Play. I read Play a lot of the time um, mm. in my convenience store shifts. And it was... Um... <laughs> I, I don't buy it. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I had to buy it because it was inside a plastic wallet. So I couldn't just stand oh. it. Like, unlike Empire or um, other magazines, I couldn't just read it during my uh, my break. But um, Foiled. Exactly. So... I applied for this job and kind of just talked about it like I was applying for play. And fortunately, they were um, recruiting for play. Um, I attached a review of Zone of the Enders, the second runner, um, nice. to show that I had, like, deep-cut PS2 knowledge. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, that did get me an interview, which is funny because I had no other experience. I, like, ran my own blog, which I deleted because it was, like, hideously embarrassing. Um, and I wanted it <laughs> off the internet before someone put it on the internet archive and I could never get rid of the evidence. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, that got me a, a first interview. And it's funny because I think most places, if they were recruiting now, you'd find the kind of applicants who go for these jobs have um, have always written somewhere. They've always got some like clippings, and I didn't have any. So I don't mm. I don't really know how I got an interview in retrospect. But um, very very fortunate. And Your natural um, brilliance shone through. <laughs> well, I think it helped in the interview that I could like I. I I expect most of the people applying didn't even read play, but I read play every month, so I could say, "Oh, I like this section. I like that section. I'd like." To oh play. god, that makes such a difference when I'm recruiting for staff writers, and I've hired quite a few over the years. You'd be amazed at how many people make it to interview, and then when you second you ask them about the mag, they're like, uh, and they're, you can tell they're reaching. They're like, "I like the reviews," and you're like, "Yeah, safe bet. It does have reviews." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas I could say I could say all the names of the writers, I could say all the sections, I could say the scores I disagreed with. I think all of that helped get me um, helped get me the job. So yeah, yeah, for sure. So fast forward through that, I was eighteen at the time. Um, very fortunate to get that. Like um, I would say, games media ended up being sort of like university and my first job combined. Um, yeah. But I remember being very intimidating, uh, being my first day in that Bournemouth office, imagine, and like being surrounded by people who were like at least like six years older than me in all all cases. Um, Right, yeah. I felt very, very young. Uh, and I don't think I was very good for a while, as we discussed on the game reviews um, episode. <laughs> but um, I was, but I was well up for it. I was like up for the challenge, you know. Like, um, give give me a preview of like Warhawk, and I'm like, yeah, I fucking want to write about Warhawk, and <laughs> I was just so so into it. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was the Holy it, Grail finding someone who wants to write about Warhawk. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of like um, sort of a breakneck change you go through. Um, when it comes to the pace of writing um, for games media. Like, um, I remember the year before, I'd written a college um, coursework piece. It was 2,500 words, and we had, like, three months to do it. And here, it was like, you know, I might need to write 3,000 words in a day. 
Um, yeah. And like that, getting used to that was really something. But I actually really, I really enjoyed that. You learn so much so fast when you're a staff writer. It was exciting. Would so, you, um, uh, this may be an odd question. Would you say you had a mentor at all? Uh, not really. So, sort of. Uh, kind of like mentor sort of emerged over time. Um, mm. Like it didn't really happen this year. But when I first started, not so much. But um, yeah, uh, I I do have a, I did have a mentor, I imagine. I'm not going to discuss them in case they would rather I didn't talk about them. On okay, the sure, no worries. Um, but um, yeah, I... Uh, Yes, I I, I, get, I I kind of did, but more for like the editing side of things later. How about you? Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, because obviously, like, I came into the mag sort of idolising a lot of the writers who I, you know, I was working with Kitsy and Greener, who I both, you know, I loved, I loved their work and, you know, but, you know, I never worked. I, I worked for like Tim Weaver for a little bit, but like, you know, I, I think I was very lucky in that my magazine years, the first five years at Future were very were basically spent working with and under people who were, um, you know, I'd grown up with and, you know, I loved their stuff and kind of, yeah, I, it wasn't exactly like a sort of a sort of mentor kind of trainee relationship, but I felt like I, you know, I did learn a huge amount for, about how, how they kind of did what they did for all those years, which definitely helped. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, yeah. Because like, now you hire people and they're like, who the fuck are you? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> Is that it's the sad reality. You're like, I'm from magazines, and they're like, nope. What are they? And you're like, oh, don't, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I suppose so. In this sort of um, first year, the sort of vibe was, I, I, I felt like the PlayStation um, Two had sort of ended, and then the PS3 started, and there was a people were very down on the PS3 around the launch period. It cost so yeah. much money. I joined the week that the PS3 launched, actually, uh, in Europe, um, and so um, in March. And uh, yeah, it was um, had like a couple of good games to kick off with Resistance and Motorstorm. Neither of those made my top ten, but um, I did like mm. them. They were they were solid little games. Uh, but Xbox is where it was at. There were two Xbox magazines in the building and two PlayStation mags, and it definitely felt like all the good times were having happening on PlayStation at the time. Uh, sorry, on Xbox at the time. And I was um, yeah, I, I remember like my editor being disappointed when I bought an Xbox 360 before a PS3, despite being oh, on a PlayStation really? magazine. Yeah. <laughs> It was a bit. I just remember it being like slightly put out, which I found quite funny. But yeah, it was. Um, it was just. I know PS3 was just really a really dull, dull console. You turned it on, it felt very cold. Um, they built this premium entertainment device that felt very out of sync at the times. With the times, particularly when the recession hit later on, the PS3 seemed mm. like a weird kind of luxury item in that in that time. Yeah, it wasn't that exciting. Being honest, like. I did enjoy working on parts of play, but like um, all the ma- Imagine mags I worked on later, I enjoyed more. Um, right. But I, what I will say is that people were very tolerant of me. I think I was extremely irritating. Um, <laughs> and I think, really? I'm, I think I'm quite irritating now. But um, as a, yeah, I think I was very young and very like uh, talking all the time. And I think um, people sort of politely humored me and were nice about my writing, even though it wasn't very good, which was very good of them. Um, I, I I became and indeed continue to become more annoying with time. <laughs> <laughs> I sure start off true. very nervous, and then once I warm up, you're like, "Ah, oh, fuck it! I wish he was nervous again." Uh, <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, I basically just rose to the point where I was um, so senior that no one could call me irritating to my face. Oh, yeah, um, that's the, that's the trick. <laughs> you can be as irritating an editor as you want to be. It's great. <laughs> um, it was cool though, and like uh, to be honest, like um, I don't get, 
I can't, I'm up and down with nostalgia for this period, but what I really miss is like the people I knew at the time. Like I miss being like a staff writer, starting a career and having the energy for it. And then like knowing all these people who weren't exactly my age, a little bit older, but they were like, you know, going to the pub with these people. And um, oh, yeah. such a key thing. And I think the reason a lot of people listen to games podcasts is that I never knew people who liked games as much as me when I was a teenager. Um, right. And I think people encounter that in their everyday lives all the time where you just don't, you don't get, you know, you couldn't just say to like most people, oh, what do you think of the ending of Bioshock Infert? You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen. But in games media, you get to have those like long pub conversations about, you know, who's your favorite Mass Effect companion and stuff. Um, and that's, yeah. that's what I miss. I miss that kind of, um, that side. Yeah. Of I was, I was, I was saying to a friend this week, actually, that like at times it felt like all the work on magazines felt like, you know, the rewarding part of it was that you got to hang out with those particular people and go to the pub with them and have this, like, really great, like, social circle. Mm. And it was like that... But the price of entry was you had to do this quite gruelling mag work. Um, obviously, yeah. I liked I liked mags as well, but it was definitely <laughs> a huge perk. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, imagine had a really cool thing as well where work would stop at 1 o'clock on Fridays. Um Right. And, and everyone would go to this pub called um, 60 Million Postcards, which I think it was Weatherspoons owned, but they did did a nice goat's cheeseburger. It's quite um, a whimsical name for a pub. Yeah, it was a very like affected kind of whimsy. Um, I went there <laughs> last year and um, it was uh, basically like a, a kind of kids and parents kind of restaurant. Um, right. It was a bit depressing. But um, it was quite exciting to move from Gosport, which was where I um, where I grew up, um, a largely laughed at um, town in Hampshire. Um, it took me moving to Bournemouth actually to realise that Gosport was not posh, and Gosport was like considered kind of embarrassing by some people. Um, but Bournemouth <laughs> Did was. Do you a re- think you were a king because you lived there? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I thought, oh, if you live by the beach, you're affluent, right? Um, but right, um, yeah. no, that's not necessarily true. Um, <laughs> But like it is, it's 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 fine there. Um, before like I don't know any MPs write to me or whatever, um, <laughs> complaining that I'm uh, destroying their perfect reputation. But um, yeah, so uh, I I moved to Bournemouth, did this, and uh, yeah, learned loads in that first year. Probably the most exciting thing I did this year was I was one of the first people in the world to see GTA Four in action in um, Rockstar's offices in New York. Nice. That, that was really exciting. Um, yeah. Imagine that in your first year. I mean. I was going to say, like, one of the big things for me was just trip, doing doing any kind of trip in my first year was always, like, absolutely wild. But the idea of, you know, New York rock star, I mean, that's crazy. That would, that would still be amazing to me now if I got to do it. Yeah, it was, like, I, I think I kind of underestimated just what a big deal it was at the time. Um, but also just um, in terms of how games progress now, like, um, this was, I was seeing this, uh, you know just over two years after San Andreas came out. And if you think about the gap between GTA 4 and San Andreas, it's like you'd never see a gap like that now with um, a new generation release. Because um, yeah. just things were moving so much quicker. Than and, even, and back then you'd be like, man, they're spending ages on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, if only you knew, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, I'm happy to wait three and a half years for a new GTA game. Um, <laughs> as opposed to like, I don't know, probably ten years by the time it's done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but no I that was that was really exciting actually. Um that was the that was the main trip I went on this year. Did you have any others that you were kind of remember well, from this year? This 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 was the year I did my wrestle trip which I mentioned when we were talking about the wrestling cover. A great um a which great was the story. WrestleMania in Detroit. Um which was the famous year where Donald Trump was there and there was going to be a fight 
between two wrestlers. And if Donald Trump's wrestler lost, he was going to have his head shaved. And if Vince McMahon's wrestler lost, he would have his head shaved. Right. And I remember we made placards. Uh, it was a THQ trip, and they were they were really good fun. The THQ PRs, and they 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 we did like a placard making session before WrestleMania, and I knew <laughs> nothing about wrestling at all. And I remember my placard said, "Trump will be bald by night's end." <laughs> That's very. Funny. It's like Game of Thrones dialogue. Uh, yeah, it was. It was too long and wordy, though. Uh, did you have to put yeah, on two like placards? Sha- shaving was like the theme of that WrestleMania. All the other placards were like, you know, shave John Cena or whatever. <laughs> um, but mine was this very complicated message, which even if you saw it on camera, it would take so long to read that it it just wouldn't work as a placard. I'm not a natural placard writer. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I can imagine you having three placards and you have to keep alternating between them. Um, yeah. So like like, the wrestlers... Stay with me, stay with me. <laughs> yeah, uh. dot, 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 next one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, also, I really like that the phrase shave John Cena sounds like a kind of, like a, an election catchphrase. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm, I'm campaigning on a platform of shaving John Cena. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Uh, no, that was a, that was a uh, definitely a fun anecdote. Um, the one about WrestleMania. Um, a- anything else you sort of did this year? Uh, I did. I, I did. I did a New York trip for Fantastic Four, which I also think I've mentioned on this podcast, which was New York Comic Con in February mm. um, of that year, uh, and everyone else was seeing the darkness, which was a lot more exciting than the the crappy Wii Fantastic Four game I was seeing. And I remember they had a lot more going on on their trip, so I had a lot more spare time at Comic-Con. I have this weird memory, not really gaming-related, of sitting down. They had a, a big play area where they were showing off some new uh, card game. And I sat down, and, and this kid was like, oh, do you, do, you, you know, do you want, like, a tutorial? Do you want, like, a free trial of this? Uh, I can show you how it works. And we were playing this thing, and it was a bit like a Magic the Gathering thing. And I was just like man alive this is so complicated like how the hell does anyone get their head around it and then this kid was like um oh yeah i created it (laughs) (laughs) what i remember just looking at him and thinking like what i was (laughs) like well best best of luck to you this is very good very fun um but i just bought i bought all this crap i've still got like a box of comic-con new york 2007 crap somewhere because i just got really overexcited and just bought all this shit even though i wasn't like massively into comics um, mm. I should probably dig it out and give it to you. There's probably something really rare in there, and you'll be like, "Oh my god, that's the first issue of Blah." Um, yeah, yeah. By all means, like when the uh, when it's safe to to take yeah. comics off of you, um, that would <laughs> yeah. be a thing that we do. And that's um, that's cool. I um, yeah, I didn't have any many other sort of like um, big trip stories from this year. Next year, I'll have fucking loads. I went on loads of trips um, in two thousand eight. But uh, yeah, this was basically like uh, figuring out how to do the job learning as i went learning to kind of email prs um the only sort of other funny sort of trip story i kind of wanted to mention was there was a pro evolution soccer press tournament where i bothered football commentator mark lawrenson um like i just stood next to him and made conversation awkwardly um for a little while i thought that was worth mentioning because it was um uh, so yeah matthew those are my stories from the time is there anything else you kind of wanted to mention before we get into the uh what the console manufacturers were doing at this time uh only one thing which was very similar to the terrible mario galaxy planet which i mentioned last year that was a 2007 special mm. um was when it was the first birthday of the wii um one of we were like oh we want to do a feature about one year of Wii and how to celebrate it and our 
deputy art editor Kim was like, well, I could make a Wii cake. I could make a cake shaped like a Wii and decorate it. And then that could be like the opening image of the feature. And we were like, that's amazing. That would be so good. Right. And um, so we did that. But the weekend she, she had to make it. I think like whenever rats died or something, this was the, the projectile pooping rats who I've also mentioned. If you're a long term listener to this podcast, you're gradually piecing together my entire life from my yeah. anecdotes. Just um, just uh, add, it, add it to the wiki, please, whoever's listening. Yeah. Uh, so whenever rats died and she was emotionally distraught and she, you know, she could have just said, well, I'm not making the cake, but she still tried. Um, I say try because it was terrible <laughs> uh, it was just awful uh and she knows this we joked about it in the mag it became like the feature like the married galaxy feature became about look at this terrible abomination we've made to celebrate Wii's first birthday yeah it was sort of shaped like a Wii, and she'd stuck the icing on using this red strawberry jam but she used so much jam it was like bleeding through all the cracks so it just looked like a big misshapen bleeding Wii. it was just just horrible just a real <laughs> abomination and then i remember the first caption on the feature there was a there was a little flash next to the wii and it said something like please don't make fun of this cake kim's rat died while she was making it <laughs> oh my god <laughs> well i hope kim doesn't listen to this and is like what the fuck is he doing bringing this up 14 years oh, later no, we like like at the time, like, if there was anything in a game like that, everyone was always on board. Like, it was a very communal thing. Because I remember being there at the photo shoot on the Monday, and, like, when it came... And, and the Kim was quite like, mm, I'm not entirely sure this cake's brilliant. And then when she unveiled it, it was like, yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It really made me laugh. I mean, we had a good laugh on that issue. That was that was just so funny, laughing at this, this tragedy cake. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had one other memory from this time I kind of wanted to mention as well, which is that um, I was sat at a desk next to a PSP debug unit. That was my colleague for a long time. Um, <laughs> and like um, after a while, they replaced They actually hired a news editor, a really um, nice guy called Chris Reynolds, who I enjoyed working with. Um, and he was like the most tolerant person for my bullshit. I would like tap on his shoulder and be like, hey, I want to talk about some absolute horseshit for 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> And that was like my Starfire experience. Um, that is a key. That's a key part of the Starfire experience. Oh yeah, for sure. It's like I will not do this work now, and then crunch to do the work at the end of the day. Um, yeah, because that's how uh, writing kind of works. Um, but but yeah. man alive, will you have heard my lost theories? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, because the year is two thousand and seven. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah, I enjoyed the um, the cake story, Matthew. Like, I feel like in every episode, you should have to bring up something awful that was made for an endgamer feature that turned out to be a disaster um, <laughs> all right then well then we'll be back um after a short break and we're going to talk about what was going on with the different console manufacturers in this year give a little bit of context as to what was going on in 2007 Matthew, welcome back to 2007. Whoa. Oh, oh wow. I'm so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> wow. They're, they're playing gym class heroes on the radio. Um, 
wow, Maroon 5 have a new album out. Uh, anyway, yeah, a bit of uh, cultural context there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, you lived very rich, uh, rich lives at the time. Um, so in this section, like with the 2006 episode, we'll talk about what was going on with um, Sony, Microsoft, and uh, Nintendo, and also um, PC, if relevant. Um, I don't actually have any PC observations here, probably because I wasn't paying that much attention to PC at the time. Mm. Um, but um, Matthew, 2007, um, E3 was massively downsized this year. It was the um, the year I think everyone thought E3 was going to be over because the previous year it was massive. People worried it got too bloated, and then it got downscaled to basically a series of conference rooms in Santa Monica, uh, where people go. Um, journalists would like bike around or get like shuttle buses and see games rather than the spectacle from years past. Um, mm. Do you remember? Do you remember this at all? Uh, I I only sort of so as I said last week, like we didn't go to E3. So from a, from a, from a distance, like we weren't really absorbing that, and we were so you know focused on delivering these like big Mario Galaxy preview features and things like that that it kind of like I don't. It took me a couple of years to get like a bit of a wider appreciation. Like I was very Nintendo centric when I went into the job, hmm. and was for a couple of years. It wasn't until I think we we sort of sat with Xbox World and PSN three that I got a better idea of, like, what E3 was looking like. Because really, it felt like E3 was for Microsoft and Sony. Like, Nintendo's thing was always quite separate, or within it, it was quite contained. Mm. So, like, yeah, like, if you put a gun to my head and said, what was the character of E3 in 2007, I, I don't think I'd know. But... Yeah, so this downsizing thing, like that, escaped me completely. It's not like loads of significance to it because E3 would come back in its um, full mm. form later on and become even more of a consumer show, um, turning it into a kind of nightmare world. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a future uh, E3 themed yeah. episode. Um, but yeah, um, so it was kind of scaled back a bit. But um, every console manufacturer had um, a presence there. Um, to talk about um, Sony first, like the PS3, it launches in Europe, massive sales at first, um, and. Uh, after over time, I would say like reception cooled quite significantly, uh, mm. and even though they had like big games releasing fairly regularly, um, most of them were a disappointment this year, or at least um, they just didn't they didn't quite capture the intention that Microsoft did with theirs. So you had uh, Warhawk this year, which is like a multiplayer uh, sort of dogfighting game, which was actually really good, but um, probably on the wrong format at the time, um, right? There was uh, which is online. It was online only, and Sony's um, online experience wasn't very good on PS3. Uh, you oh. also had uh, Heavenly Sword from Ninja Theory. It was their, yeah. I think, their first game after they made Kung Fu Chaos on Xbox. Um, which um, yeah, and like this was sort of a first run at the kind of game they would get good at, which is narrative-driven third-person action game. Pretty um, graphics. Yeah, it looked really good for the time. Th- this is the thing, like you know, it kind of had this movie-level sort of quality to it. Had, if I recall correctly, had about fifteen characters played by Andy Serkis. Um, <laughs> uh, Anna Torv was um, Noriko, the main character in it. Had like um, around this time, Sony was leaning heavily into six-axis controls, a thing, a feature that was clearly bolted on after the um, Nintendo announced that the Wii was a motion control console. This resulted in some terrible ports of Xbox games where you would shake the entire controller to hit a soldier with your gun in um, Call of Duty 3, for example. Um, yeah. And it culminated in one of the um, biggest disasters on PS3, which was Lair. Uh, the last game from Factor 5, the developers of Rogue Leader. Um, and again, a very yeah. nice looking game. Again, we controlled a dragon, lots of dragon kind of combat. 
but you had to control the dragon, um, at least at launch, you had to control the dragon with the six-axis controller, and it simply did not work. Um, oh. Did you play this game? No, I didn't play. So I, I, I didn't get a PlayStation two into, a PlayStation 3 until quite late. Uh, well, after Uncharted 2, for sure. Um, so, yeah, like, I just saw this stuff from afar and thought, oh, how, how sad. Um <laughs> <laughs> oh, sucks to be you. Um Well, I don't know, you know, obviously like Factor Five had a had a had the great rep from the Rogue Squadron games. So to see them just sort of come a cropper like that was kind of depressing. Yeah. Heavenly Sword also had six axis controls where like you would fire an arrow and have to guide the arrow with the six axis, which too that too was nightmarish. Um I've never actually played it. Was it alright? Heavenly Sword. It was yeah. It was okay. It was like um, not as good a combat game as the Devil May Cry games, or like um, you know any anything else that was kind of melee combat focused. And yeah. it was only five hours long. Like that was the other thing, very very short. So mm. just like uh, came and went, and no one really cared. Um, I think it sold okay, but um, they made no sequel. That you could argue that Hellblade, Heavenly Sword. There's a bit of um, it's a clear reference there, name wise. Um, mm. Maybe a bit of a spiritual connection. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, I've never made that connection. Yeah, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? A That's... lot of these games had amazing edge covers and then got five in edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of early PS3 in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I th- everyone who was even on PlayStation Mags at the time, I think, was quite down on them, I imagine. Um, they just, um, I remember like a Sony PR sat down with me, like, like not getting frustrated as such, but seeing I just could not play Lair, like the preview code, I just could not make the dragon turn in a, the direction it was supposed to. Mm. And she took the controller off of me, and she like did control it perfectly. And I was there thinking, but it's, if it's not intuitive enough to just pick up and control, this game's going to do nothing. And it did, it did yeah. do nothing, and it got um, got slated. They did later add um, six... Uh, you could just control it with the analog sticks, but um, too late by then. But yeah, too just late. emblematic of the bad decisions Sony was making at the time. Mm-hmm. But then... At the end of the year, you get one unexpected gem. The game that, like, I think everyone... I remember everyone imagined getting in the boardroom and playing this, and no one really caring at the time. Uncharted, Drake's Fortune. Um, Mm. A game that comes out of nowhere and is, like, is something you can only play on PS3 that's actually great. Um, And it uh, may or may not come up later in the uh, the list, Matthew. So did it it really come out of nowhere? Because surely, like, for PlayStation writers, Naughty Dog have... You know, they, they, they have amazing pedigree... As far as PlayStation people are concerned, in terms of like Crash and Jack and Daxter, it's not like they're an underdog, and you'd be surely, surely there would be some anticipation for what they did next. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, but uh, was the were critics ever like truly thrilled about like Jack and Daxter after like the first they, game? They, they made loads of them, and I feel like the the interest in them diminished over time. Yeah, I always thought they reviewed well, though. I'd, but but you know, from from my you know occasional dabblings with. PS2 magazines, but well, I, I just can't remember the story of this one. I, you know, I can't remember if it, if it was like some great hope that everyone, you know, was was pinning things on. So it surprises me to hear that it was a bit of a, you know, a surprise. Well, like you say a surprise gem. Well, my memory of the time is that like this is just uh, people thought Heavenly Sword was going to be like it. That was going to be the big thing. Like I, 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 right. I remember that being the vibe. Um, that wasn't the only kind of PS3 exclusive sort of like in the conversation at the time. So you also had um, Haze from Free Radical, and that turned out to be a disaster. That released in 2008. We'll talk about that later. Um, but uh, that basically, people thought that would be a big deal because, oh, it's the creators of Time Splitters. They only make good games, and they're making a game for <laughs> PS3. So what could go wrong? Um, 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, everything it turns out. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was just a kind of string of like uh, kind of games. Um, yeah, and like uh, it's there weren't there wasn't like an absence of them. There was a Ratchet and Clank game this year that everyone reviewed well except for me. I gave it like sixty eight percent to make you proud, Matthew. Good. Um, other outlets were giving like eighty something, and I was like, yeah, "Why?" You were, you were laying the foundations for our eventual friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the only way I knew that you would accept me um, in your life. Um, yeah, I sort of it looked all right for the time. Um, There's a kind of HD platformer game, but I don't know. I remember just being so down on PS3, and like the, <laughs> the the best thing about it was that it was like a HD console that could play PS2 games, and they stripped that out of the cheap of the cheaper model. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was the one thing like what you um you can play every game on the, the most successful successful console ever released more or less. There was like a few games that didn't work, and they cut that out as a feature. And I just thought that was so like I don't yeah. I, I they did it to save cost to bring the price of the console down. It was so expensive. It was four hundred twenty five quid um over here, but in America it was five hundred ninety nine dollars. Uh, like, <laughs> that's just absurd. Like um. <laughs> Yeah, and even though it was a Blu-ray player, no one really cared about Blu-rays at the time. Blu-ray versus HD DVD, that was a thing that was happening at this time. That was so tedious. Oh, yeah, I remember because the Xbox had the HD <laughs> drive that you could get extra. Yeah, uh, my friend um, my friend Lynch, like in, when I went to his house in like 2015, he still had that drive and like a little <laughs> stack of games. And I thought, what a quaint object. It's um, like, oh, do you want to watch uh, King Kong. Travolta hacker film uh, Swordfish in HD? <laughs> Yeah, um, I've got it's, Serenity. It's one of the 20 ones that was made. <laughs> yeah, I've got Serenity right here. Um, <laughs> and King Kong. Yeah. Um, it's like people who bought films for the PSP. <laughs> like, yeah. oh man, I can't wait to watch, watch Rush Hour again on my PSP. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I got Dodgeball in the uh, the, the sale. Um, yeah, it was a bit of that. I think... Um, well, it's meanwhile, I think people did buy Blu-rays. Um, you know, I think I knew a lot of people who had Casino Royale with their PS3, for example. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, it was just uh, just not exciting. The PS3, it had um, an, quite a good E3 show. Considering they lent really f- firmly into PlayStation Home. Matthew, do you remember PlayStation Home? Uh this was like the sort of online space, right? Yeah, it's like The yeah, Sims kind of interface. Yeah, I I only remember it because I think uh, Andy Kelly used to write a regular feature about it in PSN3 and he was often playing it or f- for that feature when he had to play it in the games review room. I remember looking across thinking, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> um. <laughs> when it did release, like, it was so boring to control your character. It was a bit like the um, Splatoon's kind of like um, Plaza bits. Um, yeah. But like as a, a whole experience. And I think they... They think they thought you would like boot your PS3 games as your like in-home character in order to play them, even though that's less convenient than using the console. Um, yeah, I guess like Second Life was quite big at the time, hmm. so maybe they were like, "Oh, we can get ahead of that or get in on this." Yeah, hmm. yeah, it was a bit of a rough time, but the, the E3 show still had. Um, they announced Infamous, which is an okay uh, sort of superhero game that released later on, uh, and Killzone Two, which was um, actually a legit game. Um, it's like the Killzone. Killzone's a silly name. Uh, the universe is daft, but they did some damn good shooting and it did look nice. Um, mm. But um, yeah, that th- this, that was it. They were basically just trying to get people excited about the future of it, but it wasn't really happening. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, you just weren't really in the PS3's orbit at the time, right? No, not not at all. Like weirdly, I, cause I can remember buying a 
What was the very cheap small PS2 called? Was it a mini or a slim? I think it was slim, yeah. Yeah, I bought one of those and basically bought, like, the tail end of PS2, you know, bought loads of pre-owned games. And also, like, PS2 was just having, a like, an amazing final run. Mm. Um, the last couple of years of PlayStation were absolutely amazing. So I was just sort of going back and, and playing a lot of that. Like, I didn't have a next-gen console until quite late in the year. Um, so... You know, it was just my Wii and my PS2 on my old CRTV, so that was kind of good. That sounds pretty good. I, I'd fucking love to have a CRTV now. Um, just uh, <laughs> plug in a Wii and a PS2. That sounds great. That's the good, that's the that's the optimal setup I want now in my home. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, in which case, then Matthew, um, there's not loads more I want to say about Sony here, other than like um, the PSP lineup was pretty good actually at this time. The PSP is a bit of an underrated console, I think. Um, you had Patapon uh, from the Loco Roca people, sort of musical sort of drum-based, controlled, some little dudes game. Um, God of War Chains of Olympus, a legit good God of War game made for the PSP, um, which I think we talked a bit about before. Mm-hmm. Um, and Final Fantasy Tactics War of the Lions, um, probably the best version of that game on a console that really suited. But no one cared about the PSP, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, the DS was really thriving at this time. Um, do you have much kind of uh, oversight of what the PSP was doing? No, like I said, I, I did have one, and then it got stolen by a burglar. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like I, I liked some of these things. I did like the God of War game. That was good. Yeah, I, I think I was just a bit. I was in such a Nintendo DS zone. Like I couldn't really appreciate what other people were doing. Like I, 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 I kind of bought the whole kind of console war or at least console superiority thing with me for quite some time. For you know, in, into the job because that was the kind of tone of Endgamer. So I, yeah, I don't know. It took me a while to kind of be a bit more uh broad-minded i think yeah it's funny because i hoarded consoles this year i bought i don't know how i managed it on my sort of salary but I bought a ps3 a 360 and a wii all within this 12 month period oh my god yeah i must have done a lot of freelance that year um but yeah um yeah i had to have everything because um it was just because as a as a kid my parents for years and years wouldn't buy me a games console so my very mature adult response is just to i will buy every console i can now and no yeah. one will stop me um, <laughs> that makes sense yeah it just meant you had to drink water whenever you went to 60 billion postcards or whatever it was <laughs> <laughs> it was million actually but um, right. <laughs> yeah i mean you know maybe one day they'll get to billion i don't know but um so let's switch tack to uh, microsoft then matthew what do yeah. you make of microsoft during this year yeah this i mean like the first next-gen console I got was was a 360, and, like, from the outside, it looked incredibly exciting. Um, like, whenever a big new Microsoft thing came in, that's what got the office moving. Like, you know, not that what happens in an office is any indicator of necessarily what's happening, you know, at a national scale, but it, it really felt like instantly that 360 was just going to be the console for this generation, like, based on the office chatter um you know right back from when they got like the first gears of war demo in and it was just like oh my god but that, that was in 2006 yeah like all the excitement around halo 3 bioshock was just massively massively important and exciting i've seen the notes you put mass effect i can't really remember what the dialogue was around like the conversation was around mass effect before it came out very positive i think like um I remember it just being talked about as this is the next game from the Knights of the Old Republic people. That yeah. was largely how it was kind of angled. Um, but obviously it was an Xbox exclusive as well. Yeah. yeah. I, 
like it's heritage yeah just based on it's like heritage you're like of course this is going to be like a great rpg but i just can't i don't know if like i just wasn't following it massively or you know i, I like i said i had a slight nintendo tunnel vision just because of the job like i wasn't re- like weirdly this was a period where i sort of stopped reading a lot of other magazines because i was just so focused on getting my stuff right like I, you know, suddenly, like I, I have a bit of a blind spot, which is why I didn't necessarily know what the conversation was around Uncharted or Mass Effect. But you know, the few things that did break through, you could tell they were going to be pretty big. It was yeah. quite slow. It, it got like great later in the year. I still think it was quite a slow first six months. Mm, yeah, it was. But like um, Microsoft also had Crackdown in this in this period, um, and I think that was like emblematic of what microsoft was getting really good at at the time which was making these xbox live enabled like multiplayer hits um Mm. as we talked about in previous episodes every games journalist basically bought a 360 and played on 360 um Mm. now you'll find it's on ps4 obviously um might be a a bit different these days but yeah it was um everyone had everyone was on 360 you could pretty much guarantee that you would like log in and see at least one or two of your friends playing cod 4 and another two playing like halo 3 um yeah. yeah it was just that kind of it really just it really just won when it came to multiplayer gaming um of a, mm. yeah, just a, a beloved console at the time and um yeah just a really good lineup i remember seeing uh the big daddy from bioshock on the cover of 360 magazine in our office and thinking what is that like i remember like this <laughs> tangible feeling of like I, bioshock looked like something i'd never seen before and yeah. what and while every fucking smug, smug motherfucker would be like, well, you didn't play System Shock 2 then, um, it did actually look <laughs> very different to System Shock 2. Very different aesthetic. Um, yeah. And like, I just, yeah, just... I, I, I remember every one of these games, I remember just being on play and looking at like either Games GM or one of the 360 mags playing them thinking, why the fuck isn't there anything like that on PS3? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Goes back to driving a dragon's neck into the ground so you can't control it <laughs> yeah it was uh it was very much like that i, I found I've, I've got a memory of um walking into um uh the games room where my um friend matthew uh Handrahan was playing um mass effect for the first time and like seeing that it was the opening sequence and like ashley sort of takes her helmet off and i remember thinking wow what's this like battle of the planets looking kind of like character <laughs> designs and stuff and uh, Mass Effect just seems so deluxe. Like, um, if you compare it yeah. to what Bioware's RPGs look like, compared to Jade Empire, the leap was like enormous. It felt like a proper next gen RPG. You know, the vibe was good around it, but um, yeah, that was um, but that was Xbox that year. Like, there's not much to say from their uh, E3 conference. It had um, Rock Band debuted there. Um, we talked about Guitar Hero on the 2006 episode, so obviously a plastic instrument game was these. These were really big this year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Um, also, Assassin's Creed, that was massively hyped this year. Um, again, this was covered in um, game review scores we got wrong. Uh, I hated <laughs> Assassin's Creed. I thought it was terrible. But uh, obviously, it was huge, and the series would go on to, um, well, it's still with us. It's still the biggest, one of the biggest series around. Um, oh, God. But, um, yeah, that's what I mean, though. Like, a lot of things that happened this year are still going now. Mm. And are still, you know, it felt like this set in motion, like, this is what the series are going to be. This is what's going to matter for, like, the next 10 years. Yeah, COD being the other one, right? Like, COD 4 was a real kind of, like... Yeah, COD, you know, the Mass Effect, the general... You know, the the kind of the second age of Bioware, I guess you could call it. Like, the investment people have, a lot of that is down to Mass Effect. Yeah, you could also argue that, like, the entire 
um, sort of um, move in RPGs from being RPGs to like these genre blended things kind of starts with Mass Effect. Um, yeah, Mass Effect leads to The Witcher Three and all that stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, um, but Matthew, you were on the Nintendo beat at the time, so why don't you talk me through what Nintendo was doing this year? Yeah, so this is a, a pretty manic year. I know, some of my memories of this period are a little muddled because we were so big into import. Certain things happened faster than other places you know it's a it's a bit of a weird year on like i had to check a lot of my dates seeing you know was this actually out this year or was it the year before or because we were playing everything often for japanese import review first um yeah i mean you know this is obviously the year of super mario galaxy which we we may talk about later um but this was this this felt like a very like like traditional nintendo we hadn't like we was obviously massive but it wasn't completely it hadn't gone completely kind of like we fit new super mario brothers Mm. uh mario kart we we weren't into the age of slightly simplified kind of core nintendo games what we were getting were things that could have probably have lived on gamecube some of them were probably originally intended to so we were getting like super paper mario metroid prime 3 super mario galaxy it's a very like you sort of forget that we started like this Mm. you know it could have been a a very it's a very core lineup to me you know and then it's only in later years that it begins to get into the kind of the basically catching up with what ds was doing you know which was using sort of familiar characters but maybe in a broader way which would be less interesting to the kind of traditional Nintendo fan. Um, this was a really great year for DS as well. You know, like, it arguably... I, I don't want to get ahead and, like, spoil some of my picks, but, you know, it had, like, Phantom Hourglass, which, you know, is arguably, like, a definitive DS experience in terms of what that console was about and what it could do. Mm. Um, we had... I, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to spoil some of my picks, so I'll, I'll talk about them later. That's good. Um, but yeah, like it felt like a. This was just an embarrassment of riches issue. I, you know, we just every issue there was something I wanted to review. Like I felt like I was tackling a big game, dropping big scores all over the place. You know, if if it had carried on like this, I think you know the memories of that that it became much more of a struggle later on. You know, and I I I wish I'd sort of, uh, you know. Uh, like appreciated it more at the time like just how good we had it well i don't know you were you know you had your crt tv like you weren't um you know you, you were playing the wii pretty aggressively i don't think there was probably loads you were missing out on or you weren't appreciating you know um, yeah but more like you know later on the lengths we had to go to to stretch games to fill the mag hmm. and then i think wow these games were like you know we did a lot less with a lot richer games. Right. You know, even though we went mad for Mario Galaxy, like I was talking on the last episode with all our kind of, like, celebratory, like, dumb previews and features and things, um, you know, when these things came out, there was always something big instantly we had to move on to where, like, the art form of covering Nintendo in the later years became about, all right, Mario Kart Wii's out, how do we write about this for the next six months? Now it's out, where... Here, like, you know, a Phantom Hourglass could come out and we might not go back to it again, which now to me seems absurd, you know, obscene even. 
Mm. Um, so it's just a very different time, you know. It, 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 yeah, just a, a very, very different time. Um, like, I'd forgotten that the Wii Zapper happened this year. Um, like, it was such a good year that you could forget about something shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they which, were like... Which was the plastic peripheral that you inserted the remote and nunchuck into to turn it into a light gun, even though holding it in your hands also worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were... Um, that was uh, another note I put here, is that when you um, look at the Nintendo... Uh, E3 conference from this year. Reggie's on stage and he's mostly talking about these uh, three different peripherals the balance board, the zapper, and the steering wheel. Although only one of those is actually like a proper peripheral. They're just like plastic shells, aren't they? Well, that's, the... Yeah, they're just ways of like, yeah, putting the remote in a different context. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like, we were about to have a wave of something else, but this year wasn't that. This year was metroid galaxy super paper Mario. it was like mm. it was stuff you were like oh this is this is this is what i like this is what i'm into and then it began to like i don't know they began to make stuff to try and fit the new crowd that they had you know it's almost like they made a generation of games not expecting we to be this huge kind of casual smash mm. and once it was it sort of shifted direction um but that's yeah. fine, you know. It's 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 absolutely fine. You know, we had we had some fun with it. The other thing I really remember about this year was the um, Smash Brothers was on the horizon, and um, they were doing the Super Smash Brothers, the Smash Brothers Dojo, which was like the Smash Brothers website. I don't think it ups updated daily. Um, I might be wrong, but it it was basically like sakurai's blog for the game where he would just constantly drip feed like new characters new levels new music new features so like you know every day that you know it became like a ritual of coming into the office and then checking to see what the new smash brothers thing was because that game was just building up in my head to be the most incredible thing ever i'm just the, the music clips he kept putting out where it'd be like you know, here's this remix of the track from, like, Metal Gear Solid 4, and you'd be like, what? This is incredible. This is happening on Nintendo. I couldn't believe it. Um, that was, like, a big part of my working routine, was getting excited for a Smash Brothers. Maybe it was every day. I, me- I remember I remember this site. Was it, like, quite a, like, by today's standards, rough-looking site? I vaguely recall it. Yeah, quite quite tacky it's still up if you go and look smash brothers doji you can see it and you can see all the posts and when he posted it and it, it became like the thing they they did this carrying on they did this with the latest smash brothers as well like it was just a constant drip feed and there'd be loads of screenshots from the game with like weird sakurai kind of captions on i assume sakurai wrote it i mean maybe he didn't but it had like quite a whimsical kind of tone to it um but yeah it was just like a real you know, it just painted this picture over a year of this game that was just going to be like everything Nintendo related. You know, it was like, look, here's, you know, Will Wright from SimCity or whatever is this character in it. And you're like, what the hell is this game going to be? Um, yeah, that was like a big, a big part of the fun. And it was a little bit like, you know, there was social media back then, but it wasn't as prevalent. It wasn't as big thing. So like, you had a bit more of a kind of uh, personal, like private relation with information online. Hmm. You know, everyone was seeing this stuff individually. It, you know, you wouldn't learn about this stuff from Twitter. You just get it, you know, how you actually sourced information and raked through the news was quite different back then. 
and it just uh yeah i i i liked that part of the job i liked you know the surprise of discovering something rather than just having like pals tell me about it online yeah yeah it's true now it's like a very reactive culture i had facebook at this time but that was kind of it um and it didn't feel like it was a place that people posted games news they just posted yeah but now now you hear like you hear things maybe not as they're intended or someone else's version of it first and but this was yeah very much of its time but yeah, yeah i was very fond of it maybe this is working on print as well but like i didn't I found that I didn't really watch E3 conferences for the first few years of working on mags. Um, and then by like 2010, I, I was like definitely watching them. Um, that was something that kind of changed over time. I would yeah. like, E3 would be a thing I'd read about when I came into the office the next day. Um, but now, yeah I, yeah. I kind of, I sort of see the jealousy about E3 because growing up, you know, I knew about it, obviously. And I used to love the E3 issues of Games Master and N64 and NGC, you know, just the, the amount of new stuff that would happen and the pictures of it, I used to think, oh my god, it just looks amazing. And then getting to do a job, I just assumed, oh yeah, we'll be going to E3, and then the logistics of it are like, oh, it's too expensive, or we're only going to send ten people, and your mag doesn't count. Da 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 da. So not yeah, like to begin with, I was quite sour, yeah, at having to look at it from afar. But like I said last week, we kind of turned that into a, a bit of an art form of like a challenge to try and like make e3 our own without having been there Mm. um but it definitely became more of a thing um i yeah i will talk about this on the later episodes when we get into the slightly darker years of the wii but yeah i remember everyone would stay after work to watch the conferences so everyone's conferences so and we'd be watching our desks and i can remember just watching the nintendo conferences and hearing like you know mike gapper on xbox world burst out laughing at how shit it was and thinking oh no this is going to be like (laughs) the joke in the office for the next month like everyone was secretly willing the other person the other other platform holders to shit the bed just for office superiority (laughs) right yeah um yeah it's uh, this is a i think this generation's like one of the most interesting ever like in terms of like how seismic the shifts were um yeah both of the types of games that like um you know nintendo was making to microsoft basically buying dominance but actually working and then them kind of being like the the best of the lot um and then sony just this was like emblematic this year of sony's what was perceived as sony's arrogance as the the number one for two generations in a row we can't fail um luxury item console that was just um yeah very coolly received like um it's still a success ultimately but not for a, it took some doing and it took mm. a few years for the good games to actually trickle in and um yeah and everything sony does now can be attributed back to this era of the ps3 where you know people mm. weren't interested people didn't like the exclusives and um yeah whereas microsoft is like almost trying to kind of recapture the vibe it had in, in this era um it's a very very defining time whereas nintendo's running the other way now and like making the most hardcore dedicated kind of nintendo console it, it, it can ultimately with games that are still very accessible and popular but um mm. yeah the, the the it feels like the design philosophy is very different you know that was uh those are my observations matthew um shall we move uh, on to our yeah. top tens yeah let's do it yeah we'll take a short break and then we'll come back with the top 10 games of 2007 
Matthew, welcome back. Oh, great. Thank you for having me back. Yep. I yes. guess. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> banter. So, um, yes, we're going to get to the top 10 list now. We're going to do what we usually do and alternate um, from 10 to 1. Um, Matthew or I will go first. We haven't decided yet. Do you want to go first, Matthew, or shall I? Yeah, I'll go first. <laughs> cool. And uh, yeah, if we get a game that is um, the same, then we will talk about it um, later on in the list. Whoever's highest got it highest in their list, they will be the ones to like start the conversation, I guess, about that game. Um, I explained that in a really complicated way, but it won't be. It'll be fine. Um, yeah. Matthew, <laughs> kick off with your number 10. Right. I'm just going to say up front, there are some really massive games not on my list. This is very <laughs> much a heart list. Okay. Yeah, that's probably worth saying, actually. Like, this is not us trying to say what are the 10 most important games of this year. This is us saying yeah, these are the games we enjoy the most. Because my first game is definitely not the most important game of this year. In fact, it has a 69 on Metacritic. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Is, is it De Blob? What is it? It isn't, but uh, my number 10 is Ghost Squad for the Wii. Ah, that's a great game, though. It's a fantastic light gun shooter based on a 2004 arcade machine. Uh, from Sega. Um, what was notable about the arcade machine is it had a sort of persistent progression system where you kind of uh, you could sort of save your progress to these cards. Um, it's basically a light gun shooter with a lot of variation in it in that there's only three levels, but they branch massively, and as you complete them, you unlock like harder versions of them which have more paths. So it's it's there's like a surprising amount of of shooting in this game um i really like light gun shooters um the appeal of them you know the appeal of the home ones um they always massively appealed but i could never really justify them because they were so expensive for what you got Mm. and here on Wii, we had a a a great you know it is a it is a great light gun shooter to begin with um but you know, you don't have to buy any separate peripherals for it. This was kind of one of the Wii Zapper games, or one of the games to kind of push you to try and get a Wii Zapper, but you didn't need it. Um, I just, I, I mean, it's probably a topic for another time, broadly about why I like light gun games. But I love the kind of melodrama of them. They got, re- they, they just move like no other shooters. They got real kind of thumping impact. Um, I find them very, very like just relaxing to play I and mean, you have to be engaged but you can kind of switch off a bit and they're perfect for like killing 15 or 20 minutes and ghost squad was a game i just i played loads of because it had all these different branching paths you know i played it for tens and tens and tens of hours um it drove me up the wall there was reviews saying you can complete it in an hour and you're like yeah it's not really the point of the thing um mm. it had some like weird quirks like it had almost like little kind of mini games sort of almost quick time events in some of the levels we had to like defuse bombs or snipe someone out at a particular moment so it just it felt like there's lots of variety um i love that you know you're shooting these sort of quite generic terrorists and there were so many terrorists in every room like it used to really make me laugh because there was like a level where you're cleaning out like a sort of like a hotel or like an alpine lodge and you'd go you'd open the door to a room and like a terrorist would jump out of a cupboard another one would rise up from behind the bed another one would slide out from under the bed and you'd shoot them then you'd go into the room by the time you turned around like another five terrorists had (laughs) slipped out from under the bed and it basically like if you just if you took it frame by frame and added it all up you were like there were like 30 terrorists in this one bedroom. Like, that's absurd. <laughs> and it just it just really made me laugh. This was just such a dumb, fun game. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, uh, just a huge amount of time for it. And the mag in general was very fond of it. I remember Kitsy reviewed this, and he was really into it as well. Um, just a, a really great early Wii game. Yeah, I um, I wonder if the review scores, like you say, are all tied to length and not to the game itself. Because I played the um, arcade cabinet of this. I finished it a couple of years ago um, down in Torquay. Uh, I spent about eight quid finishing it. Um, <laughs> And it was phenomenal. Like, what a great... Uh, like, I guess I never really think about the art of what makes a good light gun game, but that is a phenomenal, elegantly made game. It's so, so yeah. good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, like you say, like um, they actually had this on stage at the E3 show this year. Um, the Wii Zapper was a big deal for a while. But um, do you think mm. it's the best of the light gun games that were made for the Wii? Yeah, I think so. I actually quite like the second Umbrella Chronicles, the Dark Side Chronicles, I think it was called. Mm. Um, I I didn't like the first one at all. Cause the first one tried to make a light gun game out of Resident Evil 1, which is like so sedate. And, you know, you could go for like several minutes without there being a zombie because <laughs> it, it was almost too true to Resident Evil 1. Mm. Um but the second, the second one, I, I don't know if it's just because the games it was focusing on were a bit more action heavy, like Resident Evil Two and um, Three, and uh, I want to say it had F- Veronica in there as well. Um, but they, it, it was when Resident Evil became like more of an action series, so it just made more sense. Mm. And to actually boil those stories down into just like a two-hour light gun game was quite a n- nice way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ghost Squad. That's where it was at. Yeah, that's a good pick. Um, I actually bought that on Wii uh, fairly recently with the intention of playing it, but um, oh, I haven't got fun. around to it yet, but I will, because, uh, yeah, I love Ghost Squad as well. Um, so what's your number 10? It's uh, Final Fantasy Twelve on PS2, Matthew. Is this on your uh, list? It's not on my list. Um, I've got to put my hand up and say I never finished this. Neither did I, um, because <laughs> um, my PS3 died with my 50-hour save on it. Um um, oh. So I played a hell of a lot of it. I've played enough to definitely like know that I liked it and stuff like that. But it's definitely far off being my favourite Final Fantasy game. I think that's just because I think it lacks a bit of the warmth in terms of the music and the characters and the world that the previous games had. Um, at the same time, I think that's why a lot of adults um, actually quite quite like this game and prefer it to some of the other ones. Um, yeah, so it does I- feel a bit more grown up and sort of... Um uncompromising in a way yes it's a lot i would say like um it's it's out on pc now it's perfectly at home on pc it's um it's sort of like i feel it's something that if you like dragon age origins for example it's um it's a game i would recommend to players of that game um more Mm. so than people who enjoyed um final fantasy 10 or 7 or 8 and um yeah it has this very complex uh, gambit system in it which essentially lets you program characters with different parameters so um, you can like put ally under 30% health cast cure and then your characters will automatically do that it's about basically building a kind of like clockwork um, sort of perfectly functioning party of um, of fighters who, who will just do everything you want them to one yeah. after another no matter what the circumstance and then what, watching it all play out and um, seeing enemies just collapse as your kind of perfectly programmed party take them all out that that's a really satisfying feeling um i was very bad at that system i always felt that like whatever i put into the machine the logic was like whatever happens equals shit the bed <laughs> so like i was like i just couldn't click you know i i got th- i got pretty far through it but i never felt like i mastered it and yeah. 
you know, I've heard so much love for that system when it when it's firing on all cylinders. I wish yeah. I was better at it. For a PS2 game, it's a very like detailed system. Um, yeah, yeah. The other thing is that um, the newer versions of it are way are like way more worthwhile than this PS2 original because um, this game runs at quite a low resolution on PS2. It's such a nice looking game for a PS2. Um, mm. Right at the end of the era, um, it was actually released in 2006 in North America, um, but we were we're kind of obeying um, European release dates here. Um, and yeah, it's um, with the fast forward on in the new version, you can speed it up up to eight times, I think, or maybe 16 times. And you can grind through the game so quickly doing that. And it's um, it's such a great addition. Um, really, really good. Mm. Um, all the Final Fantasy um, redos have a system like that. Um, so it's, yeah, if you, if you were to play it now, definitely play it on the um, newer systems. But I, I did I did really like it. It's, um, like I say, it lacks the warmth. It's fairly famous, this game, for... Um, apparently at Square Enix's behest they changed the main character from Balthier, the Han Solo-like guy in the game because he was apparently too old, I think he's like in his early 20s, which I guess is old for a Final Fantasy protagonist um, <laughs> that, this is the rumour anyway and um, they picked the very boring Van to be the main character, who's like um, a sort of like slightly naff version of Tidus, a character that people already think is quite naff um, <laughs> in Final Fantasy X so yeah, I like it, Good, good PS2 game Matthew I like the bit where you run around saying, Bosh lives! Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I can't remember the context for that at all, just that you shout around that someone called Bosh lives. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I can't remember the other thing he says, but he says he has two lines of dialogue that he says over and over again in this town. Yeah. I, th- I think the, the idea is that you're changing public opinion with propaganda. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very silly. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, very dry for a Final Fantasy game, but... Um, a lot, what a lot of people would say was the last great Final Fantasy game. Um, and I don't think they're entirely mm. wrong, but um, I don't know. I like some of the later ones. So, mm. yeah. You're number nine, Matthew. My number nine is, again, a bit of a, a Matthew choice. I think I mentioned this when we did the 2006 list, in fact. Uh, it is Tomb Raider Anniversary. Classic. Classic uh, Matthew choice there. Yeah. Um, I love tombs. I love jumping. Jumping around tombs. It's literally a match made in heaven. <laughs> that's that's all I want from a game, really. Um, uh, I love this game because it kind of took a game I I've always really struggled with, which was the original Tomb Raider, because of the absolutely ghastly control scheme, <laughs> and just made it a modern feeling platformer. And they remade it, and it was a substantial remake. It wasn't just that game with new controls. Like they they bought a lot of their their learnings from. Uh, Tomb Raider Legend, um, Crystal Dynamics, that is. Um, But this felt like just a really great marriage of past and present. Um, It kind of had less of Legend's sort of cinematic gubbins going on in it, Um, at least how I remember it. You know, it was quite pure. A lot of the levels were just you in a tomb, Um, maybe a little heavy on the old shooting a gorilla in the face. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's like the downside to like early Lara Croft is before she got a lust for murdering men in the <laughs> reboot, all she ever did was like murder animals quite and a T Rex at one point. And yeah. but if you ignore the combat, um this had some just great platforming, you know. For me, one of the greatest pleasures in a three D platforming area of any kind is is entering a space or a room and just looking at it the complexity of a space and thinking how the hell am i going to get on top of this and then you naturally feel your way out and if something doesn't happen very often anymore because for some reason the entire games industry have decided that 3d platforming 
is a nuisance. So basically everyone auto platforms now mm. after Uncharted. Mm. Um, you know, the route is painted in white paint or bird shit or whatever environmental trick you're using Assassin's to, show Creed. The, to show the hand grips. Yeah, I blame and, Assassin's Creed for this too. Yeah, but like no one, you know, we haven't been asked to actually do any platforming in any games, you know, outside of like character platformers like Mario, uh, basically since Crystal Dynamics Tomb Raiders, I don't think. So for mm. me, this is, uh, I wish we'd go back to this, you know, that the, the puzzle is navigation and um yeah i I, re- I really really rate this series plus it, it was just beautifully done like it, it came in a, i excited on ps2 and it came in a really nice kind of collector's edition with like a uh i've had a making of documentary but it had like level commentaries and things it was just a real love letter to this game that also improved the game i think um oh. yeah that's cool that's a good choice i am um, i must confess to being put off of this game by um the fact that Imagine screenshot tech at the time was so fucking awful that PS2 games look muddy as hell. And so every time <laughs> I browsed the review of Anniversary that we ran in play, I thought, this game looks awful. Um, and I imagine it didn't. It was. It probably looked very nice. Yeah, on, on, a, on, on my old CRTV, it was fine. Mm. I wonder why they never did um, Tomb Raider 2 in this style, because it feels like that would have been like a big hit, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I guess because of the... Ri- I don't know how. I don't really know how this era of Tomb Raider was received commercially, but obviously not well enough that they then had to go and dramatically reboot it. But reboot it again, make it more like this. Mm, yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, I must admit, after we talked about um, Legend on that 2006 episode, I have been more tempted to go check them out. Um, every time oh, there's a Steam sale, they're all like 69p each. Well, so, like, uh... <laughs> spoiler alert, the third in the trilogy, Tomb Raider Underworld, will also be fe- <laughs> featuring on a future list. <laughs> yeah, well, that one was a good uh, next-gen game. We'll save that for 2008, though. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. My number nine, Matthew, is Crackdown on Xbox 360. Um, oh, not on my list, but I do like it. Yeah, so this was really an unexpected hit out of nowhere. Um, I remember it being one of the games I bought uh, an Xbox 364 because, you know, superhero game with this cel-shaded graphics, jumping around a city. Um, like you say, Matthew, it has real platforming in it. It doesn't do it for you. You actually have to, like, yeah. move the character. And, um, you know, it's... it's um, yeah, I much prefer this style of platforming to the Assassin's mm. Creed type. Um, and, yeah, it was a open-world game with a great power curve. You go around the... Um, the world collecting these orbs or earning these orbs for doing certain actions and you get better at your driving uh jumping shooting etc etc so a really really good um sort of like hybrid of an open world game and an rpg i guess um mm, uh, it was a oh, great it was fun yeah it was a great co-op game you could you know go around the whole city together in two player that was like revolutionary for the time um but i j- mostly just enjoyed it solo and it was a well a great city to explore you know yeah quite did you ever climb all the way to the top of the agency tower for the achievement? I did indeed. Um, in fact, like one of the only times I played it in co-op was with my friend Andrew, where we both climbed to the top of the tower, um, used like a cheat code to spawn in a car. Um, he got in the car, <laughs> I picked up the car and threw it off the tower with him inside. Um, <laughs> and I remember that being a good experience. Um, how about yeah, you? Did you I, climb the tower? Yeah, I climbed the tower. It's, it's a, that's a fantastic bit of this platforming challenge and the scale of it is unreal you know um i felt like because famously a lot of people bought this just for the halo 3 hmm. uh i think it was a halo 3 beta access i think it gave you to the multiplayer that's right yeah it, it's a little bit of a, a zone of enders <laughs> metal gear solid 2 deal <laughs> yeah except you know probably um 
uh, more uh, better received than Sony Enders was. Well, that's um, the thing. I think I think a lot of people bought it the Halo excitement, and then they were like, "Oh, holy shit! Crackdown's actually really amazing." Yeah, like I mentioned, it was just uh, Xbox Live, and um, you know, just getting a big new multiplayer game, and it just felt like Xbox Live could turn these games into hits. Um, mm. People were just so up for it, and obviously Microsoft was trying to work it into these games as much as possible. But uh, yeah, it was good. The sequels never seemed to capture the same magic. The second one's uh, all right. I, I, I played the second one. It's pretty good. Um, mm. Adds a gravity gun. That's quite fun. But um, yeah, uh, original Crackdown, just um, just fantastic. Great game. What's your uh, number nine, Matthew? Uh, my number eight. Number eight. Ah, oh, did it again. God damn it. Numbers, yeah, it's fine. Man. My number eight is Zack and Wiki, The Quest for Barboris's Treasure. Mm. Not on my list, you'll be shocked to hear. Um, yeah, this, uh, one of the great underrated Wii gems. Um, kind of a point-and-click adventure in that you pointed and clicked with the Wii pointer to guide a little pirate around this area but not a point and click game in the style of Monkey Island it wasn't like it wasn't like a big um verb sheet and collecting items you did collect some items but the puzzles was quite self-contained every level was about you trying to get a treasure chest and either work out a route to it or like breaking down some kind of trap it's actually very hard to summarize i was reading my review and um, sort of shaking my head at what a poor job i did of describing it back then <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in that it's kind of uh, it's sort of like a big there's a lot of like logic kind of sequencing kind of elements to it like things have to be done in certain order with certain objects it was quite easy to paint yourself into a corner and basically do things wrong so you had to restart the level which i know must have annoyed people um interestingly the producer of this also produced ghost trick which the puzzles that i can sort of see a through line you know in ghost trick it was all about using these like domestic objects to save someone's life as a ghost you could possess them and move them and here you also had quite a limited number of items you could use and it was more about interacting with the items using the Wii remote so you'd kind of manipulate them in 3D space and press buttons on the remote to make like you know play a recorder or unfold an umbrella it's it's quite hard to like pin down exactly what makes the puzzles work in this one um but what I loved about it is amazing production values I loved the puzzles they were really it was super difficult um and it had a huge Capcom energy. Like, it actually evolved and unfolds like a big Capcom action game. You know, as if you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know this is a bit of a bugbear of mine. It ends with, like, a massive, basically fighting God in space, but as a puzzle, <laughs> um, which all games should. Um, it, it feels like if Platinum made a point-and-click game, this is kind of what would happen. Like, it, ha- it somehow has action and scale and that's super impressive like how it married those two sensibilities um yeah i I really love this game it's a shame that like this this was this early era where like the wii was massive everyone took a huge punt on it and invested like big money in making really good stuff that then sold naffle and they never touched it again Mm. but it meant we had a couple of years where a lot of third parties made really interesting exclusives for the wii and Zack and Wiki is, like, just brilliant. If you've still got a Wii or a Wii U and you can somehow track down a pre-owned copy, this is highly recommended. Yeah, so I have 
not only heard of this game, I remember talking to um, a colleague at the time, Ashley Day, about this game, who was a big fan of it. Um, yeah. And Ash generally followed the um, the kind of uh, big Wii games very closely. Uh, the Wii wasn't massive at Imagine. I don't think people really took it that seriously either. Hmm. But um, yeah, I, I remember this. Um, this pops up on a lot of the best Wii game lists. And I think it is actually quite fondly remembered, even though it didn't sell very well. Uh, point and click, a point and click game just seems like more of those should have happened on the Wii. Um, but um, there yeah, were there were a few. few like they did like Broken Sword and things. But yeah, it always felt like a huge missed opportunity. That you know, there was sort of a sort of slight resurgence of these kind of story games later mm. after the Wii. But oh well, yeah, I might track down a copy of that. I did look at it on eBay a few months ago, back when I was hoovering up Wii games, thinking that would um, I don't know make the pain of lockdown go away. Um, spoiler alert, it didn't. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a great choice. Exactly the kind of um, uh, sort of wee nonsense people expect from you in this podcast. <laughs> oh, good. I'm oh, good. And uh, what about your number eight? <laughs> um, I was only joking there, by the way. Um, no, no, no. Um, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> okay. Some of these, I was looking at this list thinking, shall I dump this for a more mainstream choice? And I thought, nah. Yeah, so my list is very mainstream by comparison, except like one that I don't think anyone would guess. Um, well, maybe close friends would guess, but. Uh, yeah, otherwise, it's actually a fairly mainstream list, so it should make a good contrast for the remaining ones. My number eight is the orange box. Did that make your list? It didn't. Yeah, so uh, we talked about this. Um, we agreed earlier this week that the orange box would come as the um, would be the game that we put on the list as opposed to yeah. its individual parts. Um, confession time, I've never finished Half-Life 2. I got to, like, <laughs> Raven Home um, and then didn't get any further. Uh, I know that's too egregious. scared. <laughs> um, I know that's <laughs> egregious for the former editor of PC Gamer, but I remember like when I joined PC Gamer, I thought, "Is it a problem? I've not finished Half Life." But I thought, "Well, everyone else would have played Half Life too, so it's probably not a big deal that I haven't." Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's true. Yeah, you kind of played everything. Yeah, exactly. So I, I did really think the orange boxes are like an amazing package for the time, like a proper like. I just in this year full of amazing great games on 360. The 360 was also the console that got the best version of this. Um, PS3 one was notoriously bad. And um, yeah, so you had Half-Life 2. You had the two episodes. Episode 2 was new. Episode 1 had previously been released on PC. You had Team Fortress 2. And then you had Portal, this standalone puzzle game. And Portal was the main reason I put this on the list, Matthew. Yeah. Um, a very influential puzzle narrative game. I would say that probably a lot of a lot of indie games have taken cues from Portal, um, it's fair to say. And um, one of the first big game memes I can remember is that stupid cake meme um, <laughs> and that song that plays at the end as well. But um, without all of that, uh, you know, extra sort of cultural interpretation stuff, Portal was just a fantastic little standalone game that came as part of a, you know, a £40 package that had a bunch of other cool stuff in it. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't say I have that strong connection to the Half-Life series that, you know, a lot of people do. Um, yeah. Even though I acknowledge it's um, obviously an extremely important game um, and um, the type of shooter you don't get so much these days, but yeah, yeah, I, I think that I think that's kind of why it doesn't make my list. This is a game like I have huge admiration for, and if I was reviewing it, it would get a massive score. You know, it's a brilliant game. Mm. It's a brilliant collection of brilliant games. Um, but I just I just don't have a huge amount of personal affection for Valve games. Like then, it's it's not a world I'm obsessed with. Like I would. I will not be upset if there is never 
a Half-Life 3 at all. Like, I, I, I have no emotional attachment to it. I played them growing up. I was incredibly excited about Half-Life 2 coming out, um, you know, and, and did really, really enjoy it when I played it. But I just, there's something about, like, the setting and the aesthetic doesn't quite kind of click with me. And The cold games, um, the cold games, I would well, say. Well, that's it. They're a bit, you know, and Portal's obviously funny, but it's quite arch and it kind of holds you at a bit of a distance. I, you know, it's... There are people I know who are mad into this, and I fully understand. You know, I, I I know their sort of personality types. Um, it's a very like PC gamer game. It's a very, you know, the humor is. Oh, it sounds terrible. I was going to say the humor is like it's super nerdy. It's super smart and sharp, and that appeals to a certain mindset. I'm a bit dumber. Like I, I, you know, I'm I'm happy with you know. Mario jumping on a giant apple in space <laughs> that that will make me laugh because it's just you know giddyish childish simplicity but um yeah please a great collection for sure but it's not a hard choice for me <laughs> yeah that's why it's relatively low on my list yeah um, I think it but you know what a great package you can get it for like 15 quid backwards compatible on Xbox one like that's like a still an amazing um value collection uh, I I, yeah. I never got Team Fortress Two either. Like I just don't understand it. I just don't know how to play it. Like it's maybe that's because on console it just wasn't where it was meant to live. But I just b- baffled considering it's like one of the biggest things ever on PC. I it I think it like morphed beyond recognition on PC multiple times as well. So I have no idea what the history of the console ones like and whether it keeps up with that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so still though, like uh, yeah, like you say, a great value package. Um, mm. Just that Portal was the part from this year that I loved. I should say, in a wider sense, actually, I did not have a good PC at this time because I didn't have enough money to um, buy a nice yeah, PC. No, so did I. I didn't play um, Stalker or Crisis this year, which were both big games that arrived um, yeah. this year. So I wanted to note that as like notable omissions, um, even though I've played both subsequently and think they're they're good, but still wouldn't make this list. Um, so Matthew, <laughs> yeah. why don't you hit me with your number? Eight, seven. seven, number seven. Great. Um, having just said that, like Orange Box isn't a hard choice. Uh, I now pick the incredibly un-Matthew-like game of Call of Duty: Modern Warfare. Nice. Um, is this on your list? It is, but it's at number seven, so this is perfect. Oh, there you go. Synergy. Yeah. Um, I, I'd say I'm picking this specifically for multiplayer. Um. I was never a big online shooter person, um, definitely not before Call of Duty, but for me, this like invented the structure. As far as I'm concerned, it invented the structure that, that made these games worth playing. I loved the character development, the unlock system. I loved the kind of customization of it. I loved the idea that if with the right smarts, you could maybe gain an advantage. But it just it opened up multiplayer for me in a way that previous games hadn't it's just an amazing feeling shooter and play i I used to play this an awful lot with um one of my good friends cyrus we would play this after work like all the time this is probably the multiplayer game i've played the most and i didn't play it for like a fraction of the time compared to like most people but by my standards this was this was a big time investment i think what i loved about the earlier modern warfare games one two particular in their multiplayer maps is that they felt like a bit more like places. It felt like you were having a fight in a level, mm. as opposed, you know, in a, in a you know level from the game, as opposed to like a deathmatch arena, which I think the games became a bit more kind of clinical. And now it just feels like a kind of like 
you know, a, like a labyrinth that's basically been designed for teenagers to kill me as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, <laughs> where this was like, there are two apartment blocks. What's the story? Like, it felt like there were kind of stories in the battle. Like, I loved there was a map block which was two apartment blocks in sort of, um, I think it was like the sort of the Chernobyl kind of area of the game. Mm. And just, I remember these like sniper battles between these two blocks, and you could kind of put a little narrative onto it of these two sides. And then it became less about that and became more about, you know, what's the optimal circuit to pass through this level to, like, shoot everyone with a shotgun. And um, this was a great sniping multiplayer game. Really good fun. I love that. Yeah. Why did you like it? Well, I um, I like the multiplayer too. I don't think I got as into it as you. But I thought the um, single player was phenomenal in COD 4 as well. Just in terms of set pieces that you kind of knock down, basically. Very, like film set feeling levels a lot of the time cod 4 was probably still probably still the best of those types of games yeah. just really dramatic story it has like the big twist in the game of that nuke going off in the middle of the city and killing one of your yeah. main characters which was um you know huge at the time just um just very talked about but um and very shocking but like just uh yeah re- really uh, more than just shock value i think it just really um it was just a really great bit of uh narrative design for that to come out of nowhere that was just definitely yeah phenomenal i swear uh, that i still i did actually i stalled on the single player for ages and was like i don't really get the fuss like quite early on i think there's it was definitely in the sort of middle eastern section of the game where i think you evade like a tv station and i can remember just finding the game quite hard you know like i hadn't really got into the rhythm of how you were meant to play it the whole kind of target gallery kind of thing hmm. of sort of popping out and you know start shooting people like that and so like i remember the first you know i didn't even get to like the bomb going off when i stopped playing it to begin with and then when i finished it off i remember thinking like oh what an idiot i am this is absolutely amazing you know like the you know the bomb the the two snipers in the ghillie suits Mm. um the end of this game is like you know an action movie made playable just um, you know so exciting yeah I think the vibe like they, they invented all the tricks that they basically repeat forever, but they were here and as good as they ever were here. Absolutely, like that's it. That's the thing. Like you can't this this kind of perfects it, and then every other kind of version of this just is a different spin on it that d- dilutes it ever so slightly. Um, yeah, it's kind of how I feel a little bit about Uncharted Two. You know, mm. like you know they got the right amount of ox patting, and then off, <laughs> and then. And then it was just like, bleh, they never got the balance quite right ever again. But this is like the Uncharted 2 of Modern Wolf, of, of Call of Duties. There you go. Um, whoever's doing the uh, back page drinking game, uh, you can tick off ox patting now and take a shot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Crash Bandicoot will be coming up any moment now. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like the other thing is, I might be wrong about this, right? But my my memory of Call of Duty 4 is that it's a bit less hoorah pro-military than the later games are. It's a bit more like you're these kind of like rad SAS dudes, which I'm not saying like that's like good either, but it feels like later games get closer to being sort of propaganda for the military. Whereas... Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's odd. It's got that like... It's got that one... Is it is it Death From Above, the level where you're playing the night vision mm. kind of drone or whatever, shooting everyone? Yeah. That's quite weird now, because the dialogue in that level is very like quite gleeful like if anything it there, the, i thought you know this point's been made many times before there was all that when like leaked 
footage came out of like actual kind of drone operators and they kind of talked in a similar way and it's all kind of like mm. you know got em and like bits everywhere and all this kind Oof, of stuff and yeah. you're like oh, we're, it's a bit sinister but yeah, yeah i think you're right it, it, like this was quite james uh, i it's, it's almost a bit james bondy mm. i think you yeah. know it was quite a personal mission it, you know the villains were quite personal that you were after but that's my note. I hadn't played it for quite a while, I must admit. No, I think you're right. Uh, James Bond is definitely something I think they were going for. The fact that you're playing these sort of British main characters. Um, uh, like, I, I thought the... Um, uh, what was it called? The uh, All Gillied Up, that mission. That is yeah. like that is a phenomenal mission. And um, Oh, so good. The, like, one of the most amazing bits of sort of smoke and mirrors ever. You were like, oh my god, how are they doing this? And then you read, like, the making of that level, and the bloke's like, like every every like inter- it's basically a branch it's basically an interactive fiction in a in a in a first person shooter <laughs> like every potential thing you can do is like programmed in so it reacts properly I and mean, it's it's pretty mad yeah that's cool yeah but the the illusion of it works very well um, oh it's so good yeah just really good i'd still play it now like it's all it's just a shame that you um there aren't many people making campaigns on this level i'm just convinced that like activision's other studios never quite managed to tap into what uh, Infinity Ward got correct about in this one, um, and I think yeah. Modern Warfare Two has a lot of it as well. Even though Modern Warfare Two is like has an absolutely nutso story, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I like the I like the multiplayer too. But yeah, just an era defining shooter this year. Also looked like a proper next gen game. Um, yeah, there's like the gap between this and Call of Duty Two is pretty huge. Um, mm. Even though COD COD Two has had its own things that it did well that COD Four doesn't do. So um, yeah. Plus, um, made you um, and a bunch of other students at Oxford fail uh, their exams, Matthew. Um, <laughs> so, Matthew, what's your number six? Uh, my number six is Picross DS. Not on my list. Um, <laughs> again, another shocker. Uh, Picross, if you aren't aware of it, is like a grid-based puzzle game where numbers tell you how many squares on that line have got checks in them and how many haven't and you basically work it out i'm not going to explain picross to you you can just wiki it and picross games it basically boils down to whether or not you like the particular functionality of that game uh, on ds with the touchscreen really nicely done there are loads of people who tell you there are better ones and i'm sure there are there's lots of obscure like japanese import picross games you can get and because it is just a numbers grid you know it works in any language but this was the one that came out in the uk it had really jaunty little tunes. I played this for tens, if not hundreds of hours, just mindlessly grinding away on these grids. Um, this was like a perfect a perfect part of uh, Nintendo's touch generations on DS. Uh, I'm also fond of it because my brother was really into Picross DS as well. And he, um, he once went to a fancy dress party as Picross, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which really made me laugh. It was just a white shirt with a Picross grid drawn on it, but I like the idea of it, of like cosplaying as a number grid. Um, so yeah, Picross DS. Not much more to say then. Very addictive, good puzzle game. Nintendo didn't invent it, but they uh, executed it well. Well, if there's ever any doubt that you're related to your brother, I feel like that uh, 
photos of that fancy dress would probably clear up. Um, so Nintendo made this um, version of Picross, Matthew. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, yeah, it was Nintendo published. It was made by a company called Jupiter. They were doing a lot of this kind of thing, you know, like they had the kind of clubhouse games, and I think they did a crossword one. You know, it was kind of taking stuff that like your grandparents like to do and just making a nice, accessible DS version of it. I and mean, that's what Touch Generations was all about. You know, the kind of the aftermath of like brain training. So yeah, this was like a version of that. It just had good tunes. It downloaded. Uh, like a new grid every day as well on top of like there are tons and tons of grids mm. like some people are more attached to the images you make so the whole thing is that once you filled in a grid it kind of makes a picture and that's your reward and so you get like themed Picross you might get like Pokemon Picross where every grid makes a Pokemon's face or whatever mm. but I don't really care about the picture I just like <laughs> the act of filling these things in yeah. so I'm very like you know, I couldn't care less what the picture was of. <laughs> this reminds me of when um, on the um, your episode of the Final Games podcast, you pick Minesweeper as one of your Desert Island games. <laughs> yeah. um, is there anything else from Touch Generations that you think is like worth picking up for people who might be hoovering up DS games on eBay or whatever? Uh, nothing really jumps out. This is the one I really liked. I mean, there was that like the other good one. There was the Clubhouse games, which they, they did a version of for Switch, which is like the fifty-two games in one. Mm. I can never remember the names of these things, but it had like just a very solid version of like chess and this and that. And on DS, it famously came with a um, you could do like the local download. So if there's someone else, you could have one copy of it, but you could download enough of each game so the other person could play you in multiplayer which was quite nice mm. it was good for killing train journeys on but yeah a lot of this stuff wasn't necessarily aimed at me I'm, I'm more interested in where like some of the touch generation thinking like mixed with like more traditional games like we won't get to it this year because it wasn't out in the uk but like um professor layton becomes like a really successful marriage of the of of the kind of ideas um, I was more into that, like where it kind of worked for both audiences rather than the, you know, aesthetically, the touch generation stuff is quite sparse. You know, it's not not quite classic Nintendo. It's not full of character. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it sort of did what it said on the tin. I think Nicole Kidman was always in the adverts <laughs> for these things and sort of, you know. Apparently, she loves Picross DS or something. <laughs> I wonder if she still plays it. I wonder if this will be in her top ten for the year, Matthew. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting choice there. So, and what's uh, what's your number six? It's a uh, Mass Effect on the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty. Um, this isn't on my list. So, when did you play Mass Effect? I think I I did play it on Three Hundred and Sixty, but I played it a little after the fact. It took me a while to get in. I actually played like the first five hours of Mass Effect. Didn't like it because of how it, the, the kind of combat and everything. Didn't touch it and then went back and fell in love with it mm. just before Mass Effect 2, I think. I was quite a late comer to it. Yeah, so I um, I didn't love Mass Effect. I, I liked it. Um, I loved Mass mm. Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3. But um, yeah. this one was, um, like I said earlier, it's a true next-gen RPG. Uh, the universe of it felt so fully formed that's what's kind of amazing about it the amount of like stuff they've built how um how packed out it feels even though like most of what you see in the game you just see little snapshots of worlds and you know go to these quite barren moons to drive around your little car and collect resources um yeah it, you still got enough of it that you felt like you're part of something bigger 
Yeah. I, and it drew its characters so well, even though I think later games had slightly slightly better parties overall. Um, yeah. There was um, just a, Saren in this game was a really good villain. And there was this kind of like threat of the Reapers in the background, um, a kind of like larger sort of threat for you to deal with it throughout the trilogy. Uh, it was like quite um, flawed as a combat game, as a lot of people have noted. This uh, upcoming definitive edition would apparently do something to make it slightly better. I'm a bit unclear on what from um, how they talked about it, but um, intrigued to see Is how that's going to handle out. a bit more like Mass Effect 2. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so, but like, um, it would surely require a complete rewrite of the game because there's quite a detailed sort of inventory um, yeah. and equipment system in this game. But, um, you know, they were they were bridging the gap between um, two areas of RPG. So I, I totally get why they did things the way they were. And I didn't really have a problem with it at the time. Um, mm. Yeah, just lo- love Mass Effect. It was... Um, it really did feel like a character where you could build, I don't know, some version of yourself. I like the idea of you building a character where it's not so fully formed that you can't put your imprint on the character, but they're fully formed enough that they can talk and be interesting in cutscenes, which um, the two it's, shepherds It's a were. really hard balance to strike, I think. You know, it's the kind of part way on the spectrum between, you know, dictated and, char- you know, user-made. It's... it's uh, an interesting tightrope to walk i think yeah and some games do it better than others including games by bioware like um dragon age inquisition does it quite well i think um mm. and uh, dragon age origins you're sort of silent so um you know there are different approaches you're very fond of the Geralt approach aren't you matthew of having a pre-made character yeah i like you know i just think when a game knows what its hero is going to be you can kind of focus everything on making that character as fully realized in that world as possible i think when you've got to accommodate you know, infinite character builds. That's where v- worlds get a bit vague for me. Mm. Um, but this was a good a good mix of the two. I really like the Paragon Renegade system. Mm. Um, was always you know quite fun and good impetus to replay it. Yeah, it was. It's, it is a very binary system. It rewards you for being like really good or really bad, um, and that's something you're never quite solved in subsequent games. But mm. it's flexible enough that you can like do the old renegade decision when you want to to get the result you want and not have it not impact like the outcome of the game. Which is um, yeah, that's what you kind of want really. That's what I really liked about Mass Effect Two, where suddenly like um, the renegade button would flash up and you just shoot a guy in the head mid conversation. It's like, yep, we're moving on now, and it's like that yeah. feels good. <laughs> My, I like that my shepherd is mostly a good guy, but every now and then he'll fly off the handle and do that. Um, just literally just murder one bloke. <laughs> and that must suck for that guy's family, because at the end, everyone's like, saviour of the universe. And then they're like, well, yeah, he murdered like my uncle. <laughs> like the only human he killed out of malice was a member of my family. What does that say? <laughs> yeah. Or like um, he punched the news reporter three times in the face. Um, yeah. That's a really weird like choice you can make in that game, actually. Um <laughs> Yeah, the uh, romance system was good as well. Um, I romanced Ashley in this because I'm afraid of a boring, um, straight white man. Um, <laughs> I um, let Kaiden die he as well. Romance the space racist. <laughs> yep. Um, and then Miranda in the next one again. If I play yeah. it when I play it again this year, I'll um, I'll, I'll p- do some more interesting choices. You're gonna go for the, go for the one that looks like a Dyson vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> I might pick um I might pick uh female shepherd and um and romance like Garrus and see what that's like or something. Mm. Um yeah, and then write a really wanky article about it. Um <laughs> I also let um Kaiden die, of course, as everyone did. Mm. So that was it. That was Mass Effect, Matthew. Very good RPG. Felt like a just a wow, this is what the future of RPGs looks like at the time game. Mm. What's your number five? My number five is the Legend of Zelda Phantom Hourglass. Yeah, so kind of the Set in the Wind Waker world, sort of Toon Link uh, on the oceans again. 
this was just a triumph of making a Zelda game specifically for DS. Had touchscreen controls. You you controlled it all with the stylus. You moved him around with the stylus. What I, what I thought this really brought to the game was the items were absolutely amazing. You know, the problem Zelda has is it has an inventory it kind of leans on a lot and getting new uses out of those items is quite difficult. They're so familiar. You know, the games always find something new, but there's always a little bit of like shoot the switch with the arrow, you know, throw the bomb to light the thing. It's all, yeah, that's, that's fine. But this, just by dint of having like a control system that was that uh, gave you such direct control could do different things so you had like the boomerang which you could sketch like ex- the exact path you wanted it to go so it could like pick things up and then move them to other places or move between switches in like quite a weird pattern it just felt very very flexible and pleasant I love that you could like bring the map screen onto the touch screen, like annotate it. So there was a lot of like riddles and sort of treasure map stuff. It was a bit more like pirate adventure kind of Zelda, which was something that, you know, became sort of enabled with with this. I mean, there was literally a quest where you had to like draw lines on the map and where they intersected was where you had to dig and all this kind of stuff. It was very fun. It had a real sense of adventure to it. It's quite short. It's quite simple, quite easy. Not when I played it originally. I had to review this on Japanese import um, because Fish Nintendo didn't review Japanese imports because they were obviously pushing for the the English language releases. So this this was a game where we could like get a Phantom Hourglass review cover out early on Endgamer, mm. but it meant having to play it in Japanese, which was mostly fine. Like the Zelda games are simple and characterful enough that you can kind of understand what you're trying to do. But there were a couple of like riddles or spoken quests where. I was just having to do everything in a different sequence every time until I got the right answer. That was a nightmare. I remember sitting there at the weekend. I actually went back to visit some friends at Oxford, and I was playing it there in their house, thinking, I'll never be able to do this, and just screech in, hoping that some other poor sap was who had imported it was playing it and updating their progress on game FAQs or something. It was so (laughs) hard to... You know, I thought I was just completely stuck, but this was great. Also has a... Have you played this one? Uh, do you know what I haven't? Um... That's, that's a, it, it's got a the big divisive thing in in Phantom Hourglass is it has individual dungeons that you go to, but it has a central dungeon that you return to again and again. And the idea is that every time you return, you've brought like new equipment to it that you've got from other dungeons, and that new equipment opens up new routes or lets you do it faster. And the thing with this central dungeon, I think it's the Temple of the Sea King it's called is that you're on a time limit in there it's like a cursed space Hmm. and there are these sort of giant phantom knights that patrol it and if they catch you you know they turf you back to the beginning so it's kind of like a weird stealth dungeon that you return to over and over again and discover like new elements to it with new items some people are just like oh this game's only got five dungeons and it makes you do one (laughs) of them over and over again but i i really liked the idea of nintendo trying to do something structurally a bit interesting like you know given how much this game did to just uh you know adapt to the ds that was enough like that could have been enough that they also had this like weird experimental kind of dungeon in the middle of it i just thought was sort of them really kind of pushing themselves Mm. yeah really a really fun strange unique game um phantom hourglass just felt like whatever the equivalent you know it felt like a triple a ds game in a way that very few ds games did because it was also sort of sort of 3d from top down but it was just beautifully made the production values were unreal It, it was really uh yeah really special 
Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I do remember this looking spectacular, and um, I do seem to own it. Looking at a little box of DS games I've got, but um, yeah, I, the, I mean, bang it in your three DS and give it a go. Yeah, if, I also thought it's quite interesting that um, around this time Nintendo seemed to move like the Cartoon Link stuff off to handhelds after uh, Wind Waker. What do you think yeah. the thinking there was? Because it looked better on handheld, maybe. Yeah, I guess just like as a visual style, it makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah, I've not actually seen them speak much about Phantom Hourglass or Spirit Tracks, so it's a bit hard to know the actual the logic behind it. But you would think it's just a fit for like what the DS can do. If you want to do a 3D world, it's so broad; it kind of communicates its ideas more clearly. Mm. Um, I'm glad that they did do it, and this and Spirit Tracks also I really like. Though some people are a bit more down on Spirit Tracks because the the navigation, you're kind of stuck to rails, you know, you're on a train. Where here, you can kind of, like, chart your course around the ocean by drawing, like, a little route with the stylus. So, hmm. um, I don't know. As 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 someone who... I, I got I got a big kick when Nintendo lent heavily into, into their hardware. You know, for me, Phantom Hourglass is kind of what Skyward Sword was to the Wii. It was the game that was, like... This is everything the DS can do, and this is like the potential here. If only someone else would do this, but only Nintendo ever really did it properly. There was a rumor this week that Phantom Hourglass is going to be remade. Did you see this? No, I didn't. Yeah, I think it was based on like a trademark listing related to Phantom Hourglass in like a European country, which made hmm. them think that some kind of revival was planned. Yeah, what, what, do you think that would be worthwhile pursuit? Uh, yeah, I. Uh... I like. I don't know if I just want a remake of it because I, I, you know, I remember it fondly, and it's, you know, I have done this particular experience before. Mm. Um, you know, I'd rather they took those mechanics and, I, you know, if they wanted to do a touchscreen Zelda on Switch, I wouldn't say no. But I'd rather they maybe did something else rather than just did this adventure, which was, you know, was limited by the DS tech. I think it, if you just put it on the Switch, it would feel quite simple now. Mm. Yeah. But I'd also rather just got on and made Breath of the Wild um, too. <laughs> um, like I'm not, I don't know. Like my relationship with handheld Zelda gets a little bit wonky after Spirit Tracks. You know, like Link Between Worlds. I, I I'm not as fond of as some people are. I'm not as. I know it's not technically handheld, I guess, but like I wasn't as interested in the Link's Awakening remake. It's just okay, kind of though. over remakes, I guess. I'd rather the Zelda team put their considerable brains to new things, but that's that's you know. Well, I guess the thing is that like um, it was Grezzo who did the um, Link's Awakening remake, so I guess yeah, yeah, it, and I guess you know. I guess saying Zelda team's a bit unfair in that case, you know, like. I don't know. I'd rather they put their Zelda general Zelda efforts to new new stuff, but yeah, I mean, like um, without getting too into it, like the um, Oracle games were made by um, a Capcom studio, right? So like uh, you can yeah. you can it's still task uh, non uh, Nintendo studios to make yeah, Zelda they're, games. They're Have... great games as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe it was just um, perfectly calibrated to the DS Phantom Hourglass, and that's um, that that is yeah. where it should remain. Um, but yeah. Um, a, a great shout. I will play it at some point, Matthew. I um, plan on playing all the Zelda games I've never played at some point. Um, it's very short. You can probably do it in like six or seven hours. Yeah, I played a bit of Spirit Tracks too, and I liked it. It was worth making Spirit Tracks just to have that Smash Bros. level where you're on the train. Um, yeah, it's got, got good music as well. Uh, Spirit Tracks. Uh, well, we'll talk about that in a later episode. But it does some good stuff with Zelda as well. Mm. So, all right. Well, my number five, Matthew, is Uncharted Drake's Fortune. Is this on your list? It isn't. Yeah. So. Everyone now says that Uncharted um, is either like bad 
um, actually, or clearly the worst one. And they're correct. It's the worst one. And it hasn't dated as well as some of the other ones. However, you weren't there, man. You weren't there (laughs) on a PlayStation magazine in 2007. This seemed like such a breath of fresh air. And like, um, as we did with um, the previous 2006 episode, I did look at the Eurogamer like reader comments for this year for Mm. the games they nominated. It gets confusing because for some reason there are loads of games that didn't actually like come out in 2007. But anyway, um, for the Uncharted bit... Even though loads of, char- loads of games now have these kinds of characters, people were blown away by how affable Drake was and how affable yeah, all the yeah. characters were. Like, um, you got to remember this was a game of very sort of stiff, boring protagonists. If you look at Altair and Assassin's Creed by comparison, um, he was just a complete non-event of a character. Loads of generic-looking bold guys. After this, Nathan Drake influences so many characters that follow like you wouldn't have Ezio, I don't think, without Nathan Drake, for example, and then all those other Assassin's Creed protagonists who are a bit cheekier and fun. And um, mm. yeah, he just brings in like a different sort of like side to games. Like um, games are always trying to be cinematic in terms of like having cutscenes and you know creating kind of blockbuster style set pieces. But the actual kind of like effort of this to go into like characterization and incidental dialogue, just Uncharted felt really just like nothing else at the time. And um, when it comes to platforming, it's quite pared back compared to the Tomb Raider mm. games, but it still had that kind of Tomb Raider vibe in a format that was very, um, very comfortable. The island setting in this one, uh, lots of green, lots of caves. Yeah, like um, not as kind of lavish as previous as um, future games would be. Yeah, even though it goes off the rails when they introduce a load of like Nazi zombies later on or whatever they were, like those dudes <laughs> who are skeletons. Or... It is properly supernatural, isn't it, this one? Yeah, I, actually, I don't think they are Nazis. I think they're like long... I think they killed the Nazis. Like you find a U-boat at one point, one of the more memorable sections of this game. Yeah. A U-boat sort of stuck on a waterfall, which is a really cool set piece. But yeah, you awaken something and then all of these skeleton dudes start charging at you. But yeah, it is, it is properly... Um, it does that sort of Indiana Jones thing of it goes supernatural in Act 3 kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Has a terrible final boss, but yeah. They all do. <laughs> they all do. Just a cut on Naughty Dog, don't know how to finish a game. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but yeah, I just really loved Uncharted at the time. I thought Drake was a great character and it was, um, like I say, it was like the only saving grace for the PS3 this year, it felt like. Um, yeah. Yeah. The soggy clothes tech, that was amazing. Yeah, it looked really, really good. That was like the first time I'd seen that. And then you were like, now everyone does it. But at the time you were like, oh my God, their clothes are actually wet. <laughs> <laughs> it was just nice to have like one game that kind of people coveted, even if they don't oh, they didn't own PS3s, you know. Um, definitely. I, cause I remember because I, I used to, at the time in 2007, I was, I was um, I used to share a flat with uh, Leon Hurley, who was working on official PlayStation magazine at the time. Mm. And this was just like, I can just remember the excitement of Uncharted coming, you know, of like, you know, finally having that kind of, the drought is over and check this out. And I remember watching bits of on his TV and being like, oh, wow, actually, it looked amazing. Mm. I mean, aesthetically, so much more my my vibe than like Gears of War, for example. Yeah. Um, It felt like the console setting out their stools a bit of like, well, you know, 360s where you have big macho men and here's just like cool Indiana Jones. What a great character. Yeah, that's how I felt too. Like, um, Gears of War's tone just never really quite um, captured my imagination, even though it, yeah. the shooting the shooting was uh, definitely better than it was in Uncharted. But um, yes, what a great, yeah, what a great creation. And, um, you know, the most significant, in retrospect, the most significant um, game of the generation for Sony, really, in terms of yeah. dictating its future direction. So yeah, how about, uh, what's your number four, Matthew? My number four is Hotel Dusk, Room 215. 
another game I own but have not played, but um, I'm not I surprised to see it's on your list. I would have guessed it was quite high. I think that's the case for a lot of people. It's a bit of a cult, a cult classic. I imagine lots of people have picked it up from CEX at some point. <laughs> yes, this is a DS uh, adventure game made by a company called Sing, who are now sadly departed. Had a great little run of about 10 years where they made pretty much exclusively Nintendo games sort of they weren't they weren't a nintendo studio but they were published by nintendo and they were making interesting interactive story sort of experiments with often quite lush or interesting visual concepts so this is a story set in 1979 i think and it's about a detective called carl hyde who stays in a hotel hotel dusk and he gets given a room which uh, the rumours say grants wishes to people who stay in it. And you basically mooch around this hotel, meeting the other guests, solving some light mysteries. It's very, like, in hindsight, got way more of like a television storytelling vibe than a film vibe, which is, th- which is what I think probably a lot of people like link it to like um, Twin Peaks. You know, often comes up when people mention it. It's also that Americana of like the hotel itself, but... You know, it's it's basically an ensemble drama where there is a mystery, but it's pretty chilled how you actually kind of uncover it. And there's lots of people in the hotel and everyone has is hiding something. A lot of their stories are quite sentimental. You know, the way it's sort of divided into chapters is you're almost sort of solving smaller domestic problems for people in this hotel. And through that emerges the kind of season arc, which is the mystery of Hotel Dusk. It's a very small space that you explore but what i love about it is that you know it's probably fewer than 20 rooms this whole place and you probably spend about 20 hours there and you just get to know it like the back of your hand you become really familiar and it's quite daring i think to have a game that's comfortable to just take its time in one space and go you're really going to get to know everyone here and you're going to get invested in everyone here so even if their stories aren't like the most grand sort of action-packed things ever you'll be so invested in it that you know, they feel more important to you. So it's quite low-key if I was to describe what actually happened. But when you're in there, you really lose yourself. It's really immersive. I, 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 I really love this game. The second game, I think, is even better, uh, Last Window, and that will definitely come up at some point. But I, um, it, it almost has a lot of sensibilities that are now praised in a lot of indie games where it's, like, super low-key, and everyone's like, how daring, how brave. And I love that Nintendo published this super low-key kind of game as a sort of mainstream thing it's just about talking and relationships it's got this amazing hand-drawn style of like where they sort of photoshopped people and then sort of drew over them to turn them into like living illustrations Mm. you hold the ds like a book um and move around on the touch screen and the kind of conversations Mm. play across the 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 two screens on the ds uh in a really novel way um literally a novel way it's like a book yeah I love this game. Great vibes. Yeah, I feel like if there was ever a Matt Castle indie game, it would be like a version of this. Yeah, I like if I ever if I ever get my act together, like I, I you know, if I was to ever make an indie game, I would make a spiritual successor to this series. Mm. Like I kind of know where I'd set it. I kind of know what I'd do with it. Like it just has such a clear vibe. Yeah, I really, yes, it's great. Yeah, a really great game. Like a really great, like, little mood piece. Really bizarre that, like, these games did, like, nothing at all and Nintendo carried on making them um, until they basically, 
you know just couldn't just couldn't keep kind of investing in these sort of non-sellers i think oh it's funny because i remember that ad campaign that showed them showed it being held like a book and them treating it like it was a you know like a crime novel being read by someone in a living room or something um Mm. um, like yeah it's it's great it's a great pitch um this also resulted in me in, if you remember the reviews episode, I think I mentioned this, that I, I wrote the worst ever review I've ever written, which was like a first person detective novel. And it was just total shit. I oh. mean, really bad. Um, I did a great disservice to Hotel Dusk, a game I should have just supported with a conventional review. So people actually bought it rather than going, oh, well, if this asshole likes it, then I probably won't. <laughs> well, um, the um, thing is, Matthew, we've talked a bit about the idea of doing like a kind of crime games episode or like possibly a visual mm. novels episode. So um, hopefully we'll get to talk about it in more detail then. Yeah, maybe- yeah. So there's a lot to say on this game, but if you can dig it out and buy it, find a copy somewhere, did Go do it. It's absolutely fabulous. Uh, great pick. I uh, I will say on a side note, actually, Matthew, I managed to find the issue of play that has my Nico Bellic first person writing in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, maybe we should do like an episode where you read out your Hotel Dusk uh, review. Yeah, and I read let, out let's, do, let's, let's do that. Yeah, yeah, that will be hilarious. And uh, that maybe that will be a Patreon exclusive if we ever do that. Yeah, I'll um, cringe myself inside out. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, great. So my what's, four, uh, what's your number four? It's uh, Bioshock, Matthew. Um, oh, that's my number three. Nice, perfect. Yeah, so first-person game launched exclusively on Xbox and PC originally before coming to other formats. This was a kind of immersive simi game made by the developers of System Shock 2. The creator director was Ken Levine, but loads of different people made this game. Um, quite strong personalities from the sounds of it. Um, people owned different like levels within the game and I think like worked extremely hard to um, get this to the point they wanted it to be. I think it actually like, only really came together in the last few months of development, is my understanding of Bioshock and how it was made. Mm. Um, yeah. I think it has dated worse than people probably think it has. I think the power... The kind of power structure in this game is a bit... The curve, rather, is a bit odd. Like, you are both underpowered and overpowered. You can die quite easily in this game, but because of the Vita tubes, there's never really a cost to dying. You mm. can kind of keep throwing yourself at enemies. I think Bioshock 2 has better combat than this. They um, really yeah. find ways... By making you the big daddy, they give you a bigger armory and more enemies to deal with. I mean, you can kind of lay traps and... Um, find a different ways to deal with enemies in a way that i think is a bit more true to the immersive sim than this is yeah um, definitely i don't think this works as well as a stealth game either but um it, none of that really matters because it's all about the world isn't it rapture was an amazing creation for the time felt so like lived in as they say you arrive after this kind of like um uh, 1959 um, new year's party um, you're playing crashes in a very memorable sequence um, you get into a bathysphere and you see the city, your underwater city, for the first time. It's a, it's one of the best moments in in gaming. Um, yeah, for sure. That I was that blew me away. Yeah. Like I get, I, it's one moment. I still get chills thinking about it. I absolutely just the voiceover and the music and everything and it, the way it looks, it's just incredible. Yeah, I, I wish like a game a game world could feel like that again. In fact, I, I will say the Bioshock Infinite got pretty close. That was pretty amazing to see for the first time. Yeah. Um, but this was a true like moment of this generation that just like uh, yeah just blew everyone away um and um people are right to remember that the game dips off a bit in the like the second half like the um boss fight at the end is obviously like um notoriously bad 
um, yeah. after the twist. After the big twist, the game sort of loses momentum, I think. But um, exploring the different um, parts of this world for the first time. you know, Fort Frolic. Fort Frolic, yes, of course, the most famous region of the game, designed by Jordan Thomas, um, who worked with Stephen Alexander to build that very phenomenal level sander cohen extremely memorable character oh um, so good yeah so good like from a storytelling point of view an audio visual level bioshock was a phenomenal game yeah like i say completely envious of it when i was working on play and seeing the xbox boys playing this i remember going to like uh, a colleague's house the weekend that this came out and he lived with a bunch of other imagined journalists and they were all just playing it and it seemed like so the main event and i just went out and bought it straight away afterwards and um, yeah I, I my memory of this because like for ages it'd been around for a while i remember bioshock was always a bit weird because there were it was like a there was almost a bit of like peter molyneux-ish like big talk about what it was going to do like originally there was always talk of like this very complex ecosystem between the different that you know as if it was going to be a bit more of a living space which really boiled down to some quite simple elements eventually but i'd kind of just had it at the back of my head as like oh it's that thing where you know, there's lots of big promises, but no one really knows what it's going to be. And then I just suddenly remember there being a point where it's all anyone was suddenly talking about at the pub before it came out. You know, all, obviously Future had a lot of like, it had Xbox, but it also had a lot of different PC magazines. So I remember like people from like PC Gamer and PC Format were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And like just hearing snippets of like, you know, oh, bees can come out of your hands and. And someone else was talking about, like, oh, I took all these, like, things, so I had a wrench, so I didn't even use guns. I just made my, my like, wrench arm so powerful I could just batter people. And I remember thinking, what the hell is this? This sounds amazing. Like, they were all so enraptured <laughs> with it that um, I just knew it was just going to be absolutely essential. And when I eventually did get to play it, and this was the game I got with, with the 360, this is the one that... That that finally kind of pushed over the edge. This is the one. Uh, yeah, I remember just playing that opening segment and being like, "Oh shit, I've never seen anything like this before." Um, just amazing, amazing. And it, it it really bugs me that like kind of like there's a lot of sniffiness towards Bioshock now as a series. Mm. Yeah, it's almost because it's like a mainstream game that has some ideas, and so like smart people like to put it down. You know, <laughs> you think that's clever, <laughs> and actually, it's like well, it does have like more to say and more ideas than most games Mm. and also it's just a phenomenal like incredible polished thing to be in i i hate the snobbishness towards bioshock like (laughs) even bioshock infinite that's a fucking rad game i love it yeah i don't like um mind people criticizing the politics of bioshock infinite because i you criticize its ideas for sure Mm. but it's more this idea of like oh you think that's smart (laughs) and you're like well all right yeah sure no i do agree with you like i say the system shock 2 people really just fucking annoyed me it's like i get it that sort of like you say um snobbery is just kind of irritating yeah and uh yeah this was just like i don't know this this is a blockbuster game just uh, imagine anyone making anything like this now you know what i mean like it just yeah you just there don't... was that there there hasn't been a thing like it since in terms that's had that like instant impact of just yeah complete dazzlement yeah but... i I bought, I bought this and another game, my number one actually, on the same day for the 360, um, and it just felt like a yeah, just a huge moment. And again, yet another game where being on a PS3 mag, why the fuck aren't they making games like this on PS3? Um, <laughs> it did come out on PS3 the next year, but um, yeah, no, I'm with you on that, Matthew. I think that people people were sniffy about it, and it's like 
what the what the fuck do, what do you think like mainstream games are supposed to be doing if this isn't enough you know yeah I mean? it's scary it's a scary place to be as well like i found this quite a scary game when i first played it once i was a bit more powerful less so but like you just feel so confined you know you're locked in there with all these maniacs at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> such a great setup yeah even the thing of like how they um use the same uh npc voice actors over and over again to like give the place a vibe like there's mm. there's like a posh female voice in this in this game that I remember so so well that like I automatically if you if I heard that voice I'd be like Rapture Bioshock like yeah those kind of, they thought so hard about those kind of details and yeah while it may have broken the brains of some of the developers who made it um it is definitely a masterpiece so um yeah is it thumbs up for Bioshock mm-hmm. so is it my number three because that was it's your, your number three, three. Uh, my number three will definitely will probably be your number one Matthew but it's uh, Super Mario Galaxy. Yeah, it's it's higher up on my list. So that's, <laughs> we'll talk about it then. <laughs> what's um? So what's your number two? My number two is Phoenix Wright: Trials and Tribulations. Didn't make my list, although I have played it. Yeah, this is the last Phoenix Wright. It's part three. Um, part two also came out this year. Justice for All. Mm. Um, my least favorite Phoenix Wright game, I think. Um, part two, but then followed by my favorite one. Um, I don't have too much. Uh, smart observations for this one other than it it just delivers what a great final season of television delivers in that it has its own stories it has its own cases but it also builds on everything that comes before and really wraps it up there's lashings of fan service it's not embarrassed to expect you to have played the previous two games it really did like behave like the end part of a big story and for me, the kind of the melodrama but that I really love that's at the heart of the Ace Attorney games, that really upped that. I love the kind of flashbacks to seeing like Phoenix Wright as a young man and you get to play as other characters. And, uh, you know, I won't spoil some of, some of the twists, but the way it kind of paints its picture to kind of set up this sort of ultimate evil villain is, is really well done. Absolutely fantastic prosecutor, <laughs> um, Godot, who is... Uh, a kind of coffee coffee drinking dude with like a sort of cyborg visor who throws cups of coffee at you when he's when he's cross it's super weird very very funny yeah i really really like this game there just just a, a great conclusion to the story i think it's also got a couple of genuinely some of the emotional moments some of the most emotional moments in games like games very rarely move me I, f- I find it's it's too much of a leap to jump over but i think there are a couple of twists and fates in this game that are really like brilliantly brilliantly done oh it's great absolutely fantastic we talked about this um on a previous episode but the ds is still the place to play this um like not the 3ds version the original ds versions like the... yeah just the original art is is a big part of it and the music you know you can play the the, the version on pc and everything it, it feels like a handheld game to me like it's something you get you plug your headphones in you just really focus it on a on a little handheld screen that's where it feels like it lives like it, it feels a little emptier on a massive tv hmm. um but you know it's still it's still there but yeah this is Oh, it's so good. Shooter Kumi's ab- absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, and there's so much... I, when I interviewed him for O&M and we were talking about, you know, some of the twists and outcomes in this game and so many of these things which I'd attributed to just being, like, brilliant storytelling and he was like, oh, I really, like, wrote myself into some corners with this game, you know, because I said certain things about certain characters 
you know, like so-and-so had never lost a case. So if we ever did any flashbacks with him, you know, you couldn't ever really beat him because of that. And that forced him to come up with some like quite bleak things that happen in the game. Um, it's, it's really great. Is that Edgeworth who never lost a case? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the whole point, yeah, is he's never meant to have, you know, he's had the unbroken run by the time you meet him. So mm-hmm. if you meet him in the past, you obviously can't win, but then you have to win every case. And, oh. you know, as a kind of narrative challenge, that's quite interesting. Um, but you you kind of have to play the other two for this to really work, I think. And it's great in its own right, but it's the payoff. And, you know, even though I said two is my least favourite, it's still fine by most game standards. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to ask about, because two is one I have played all the way through. And it, it yeah. I mentioned previously, it took me over 10 years to finish this one. Um, I did start it, yeah. yeah, like years ago. And I... I think I found the cyclock system to be quite hard work. Um, yeah, I mean, that stuff continues. I, I think the problem I have with two is I, I just don't like Francisca von Karma, the prosecutor. Yeah, she's like, she's like the, she's the worst of the prosecutors. Like her whole shtick that she just calls everyone a fool, like isn't particularly spicy. And the whip, um, oh, the whip was annoying. <laughs> like it's not much to hang a character on. Um, yeah, it's still got it's got it's got a couple of great cases in it, but generally, like the vibe of it isn't isn't doesn't quite work, but. You know, it all pays off in in three. So mm. yeah, I thought that the um, I thought that the kind of use of flashbacks in three. I've not finished three, but I thought the use of flashbacks in three was quite was quite interesting and did add a little bit of flavour to it that it didn't um, that yeah. the second one maybe lacked. Um, you say yeah, definitely. You know, but then it only works because by this point they've got characters and you want to see their pasts and you want to get into it and see what their deal is. You know, I don't think it would have worked going straight into that in two, for example. Mm. Um, but, you know, you almost have to have fans before you can do fan service. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no, I should, I should sit down and finish this one. I also remember the dude talking about his hemorrhoids a lot. That was a thing, right? <laughs> the um, Mia's boss, that guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that dude has hemorrhoid problems and just brings them up. But that's like his shtick. And it's like, oh, okay, interesting choice to um, to see that in a game. But um <laughs> No, we should do a Phoenix Wright episode at some point, Matthew, because um, just before we start recording this, they um, in Taiwan, they rated the Great Ace Attorney collection. Um, and, like, we should play that, and then we should, like, I don't know, either rank, you should either rank the games or we should talk about the games in more detail or something. That'd be good. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd, like, hey, I'll talk about Phoenix Wright forever. Mm, cool. All right. What's your number two? It's God Hand on PS2, Matthew. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this was my uh, unexpected... Um, choice well i thought it'd be unexpected but um to people who follow me on twitter it might not be that surprising um so god hand is a game from clover studio um it's directed by shinji mikami it is a brawler essentially it's like a 3d brawler that kind of takes um cues from 2d brawlers um back in the day mm. it has a system where you can build your own combos so you have like a menu screen and you basically um can ent- enter uh what move you'll perform um on the square button on say your second or third or fourth press and then the idea is you build up this combo system and also you kind of um you can assign power attacks as well um that you can change as you go so basically you're building your own you're entirely building your own kind of fighting system um you can stick with the default but you unlock more and more and more powerful like um parts of combos as you go and um finding the rhythm that works for you and the kind of right timings of them that's like the magic of this game um it's a, got a very very silly sense of humor um the world it's set in is like um oh how to describe it kind of a bit westerny um but kind of, it's kind of like a really silly anime it's got like 
little strips of like um japanese culture that kind of feed into it like uh sort of power ranger style um characters popping up um it's offensive in a couple of different ways that i uh i might as well just uh, i might as well just say that um because therefore by <laughs> owning it i can talk about it with some affection still um but it's, there's definitely a couple bits that definitely don't stand the test of time um yeah. but yeah as a kind of com- 3d combat game um I just I just really loved it and we talked about this on a previous podcast the Archipel documentary about Mikami where he said that he made this game for like one person in his studio to enjoy and like <laughs> entirely built it around them I think it's probably one of the reasons it's so good but also the reason it sold like shit yeah it is a a very like intricate brawling game mm. that doesn't quite have the same iconography of a another sort of um a more famous sort of capcom style game so um mm. yeah what do you make of this one matthew yeah I, I must admit i've never played god hand all the way through mm. like i struggled with it a little bit also the copy i owned of it uh i lent to rich stanton about 10 years ago and he never <laughs> gave it back <laughs> classic I, I would imagine this is like one of rich stanton's favorite games uh, well that's the thing so i don't really mind because i know it brings him a lot of joy <laughs> I was like, this was a game I was really hyped about, though. I was I was big into the Clover thing. Side note, Akami did not make my list this year, and it did release in Europe this year. Um, yeah, same here. Yeah, I, I like I like Akami aesthetically, but I it is kind of like a, a not as good kind of Zelda game. Um, is my I, sort of I don't like it. the fact that the combat is so kind of removed from the world. Yeah, well, kind of like the barrier yeah. that pops up, and you it's just to... like an empty world with like weird ghost parchments that you touch to kind of go into fights is what i is how i sort of remember it yeah it's it's nice you can play it on so many formats now i think akami is now a successful game because it's released on so many different platforms um but god hand is definitely kind of forgotten um i think it definitely it has a cult fan base but um it is a true cult game it did not sell Mm. well came out very late on the ps2 um and it's one of the games that resulted in clover being closed so uh yeah, I really love it. I, I I also maintain it is like a genuinely funny game. Some of the music in it is fantastic. I think No More Heroes has a little bit of the same vibe as this game, actually, um, mm. which will come up in a future episode, I'm sure. Yeah, a kind of like um, a, a great, a, just a, a great kind of Capcom game in an era where they were about to take a left turn into being a slightly more watered down, Western focused publisher before they'd sort of like rediscover their magic a bit later on not with all of their yeah. games but with some of their games you know it's very ps2 era absolutely yeah um yeah capcom made loads of great ps2 games and loads of weird ps2 games as well and this kind of straddles the two i would say um yeah yeah definitely okay matthew we've reached your number one my number one is drum roll super mario galaxy oh my god no one who could have saw it coming you know yeah i just i i this probably my favorite game of all time profoundly brilliant experience i you know i just remember you know i you know i love replaying it but i'll I'll never be able to get back to that the simple like magic of playing that for the first time on a review trip in uh, nintendo uk's windsor hq in their little review room at the end it was just me i can just remember like every 10 minutes just turning around like because I wanted, you know, just to see if there was anyone. There was no one in the room, but I just was instinctively turning to people to see if they'd bear witness to what was happening on TV. Because <laughs> it was just so amazing, you know. It was like an instinctual, wow! Like, are we getting this? Like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, this was a game we'd obviously hyped to the the extent we'd built a papier mache planet. Um, 
we were like truly demented for Mario, uh, <laughs> Mario Galaxy, and it just delivered in such such a big. I mean, just didn't disappoint. Went completely beyond um, everything about this game. I just think it just just escalates endlessly, and it always goes one step further than you think. You know, it starts off with these absolutely sort of mind-bending kind of concepts in every level and then it just keeps pushing them and pushing them and pushing them until it just ends on such a high note like that there are so few levels in this game that i don't enjoy i just think that they're, they're just the ramp up of joy constantly is fantastic um the best some of the best movement i my is it the best Mario movement? Like, Odyssey comes close, I will admit. Like, I think Odyssey added some stuff to Mario's movement, which is just so joyful that I, you know, hats off to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this, in terms of the core, like how I want Mario to move, how reactive he is on the stick, uh, the triple jump, the long jump. The, Mario's long jump in this is probably the most tactile movement in all of games. Because if you remember, you play this movement on the nunchuck, on the Wii that is, and Mario moves on the analog stick, and you press the um, the Z button on the nunchuck to crouch, and it's this literal, this sensation of like your hand kind of balling up, like Mario as he gets small, and then you kind of release him and he goes flying. It's just, it's so satisfying. I love the long jumps in this game, particularly because when you throw gravity into the mix, it's like a long jump that puts you into orbit. That's insane. What a notion, you know? <laughs> a, a world where you can jump so far that you become a satellite, you know? <laughs> That's just, oh my God, like, what a thing. Um, I just, you know, it's very hard. To, there is no enc- all-encompassing, like, line on this game of, like, it is good because it's just everything about it is good. The level concepts, the music, the movement, just how playful it is. It's one of the few games where you can just move Mario and be happy to see how, you know, what happens when I jump in this way on this particular planet or this particular planet. You know, when you're on one of the 2D areas and there's up and down gravity, you know, backflipping Mario into a different gravity field and his backflip becomes like a perfect landing. That's just conceptually so out there and just so satisfying to play um i really and i genuinely mean this like i can't respect people who don't like this game like (laughs) this is a this is a deal breaker for me if you don't like this game you and i will never be friends like it's just a fact of the matter there's so much life and just energy in this thing it's such a positive thing i love galaxy i love it the music the gusty garden galaxy oh my god Oh, just what a thing! The overall soundscape of this game is amazing. Um, oh no, yeah, just uh, you know, I was listening to the soundtrack of it last night and was just like, God, what a you know, that's crazy that a game ever sounded this good. I mean, just the you just want that's what you want life to feel like, isn't it? How Mario Galaxy sounds. <laughs> is there a particular um, uh, like level in this game or like set of levels, Matthew, that you um, that you think is like the the peak of it? Uh for a long time, I always held. Uh, I love Boy Base. Um, 
because I love just the platform. It's got some really nice platforming as you're climbing it, and it ends with that absolutely classic. You use the screw attack on, you use the spin attack on the screw, and then the kind of the whole metal orb kind of hinges back, mm. and it's suddenly you're in like an orb of uh, a, a, a pool of water floating in the sea. Swimming in this game is mad because you're underwater, and then you're looking out of the water and thinking that's space. Like I'm swimming in space. Like it's just it's such a it's such a wild like that's kind of mind blowing. I don't know. It's kind of got that thing that sci-fi has where it just goes so galaxy brain on you that you're like this is this is so insane that I'm doing this. Um, I love the music in Gusty Garden Galaxy. Gusty Garden Galaxy isn't actually the best galaxy in this game, not by a long way, but the music is just the most heroic tune ever. And everything, every level has something that I. I absolutely adore um, the skating on that ice donut at the start of the Freeze Flame Galaxy. Oh, that's so good. You, I could just ice, that could be a game. I would pay 50 quid just to ice skate on a donut forever. <laughs> and it's just like one planet and you spend like 30 seconds there if you want. Or you just spend ages just darting around on it and having fun. Mm. Um, I just find the spaces in this game. I can spend so much time playing there in a way that I can't. Like that's that's what's missing in 3D world. It it you know there's lots of toys for you to use, but the very act of just being isn't quite as fun for me. Yeah, that's. Um, I think like the the fact that it is a sci-fi game essentially unlocks a whole bunch of different concepts that you wouldn't have previously seen in Mario. Um, mm. And thematically, that's why it's like. Um, why i think it feels so imaginative it's like well we're in space so we can do anything um yeah and that just clearly um yeah unlocked their imaginations as level designers um i also thought it's miraculous that like uh, the kind of camera control in this game and the the perspective of it you still don't ever get lost with how you control mario and i felt that must have been so hard to do with the sort of shape of the planets and how kind of like weird weird your movements have to be sometimes um just how playable it feels in spite of like what could have been some big logistical challenges of making the the worlds feel coherent um mm. yeah very very good yeah i think oh. i think a lot of people listening just like hearing you talk about mario matthew so it's nice to uh, oh i've just been bollocking on about it for so long now i just endlessly repeat myself it must be very boring nah not at all people <laughs> no nah, people love that shit i i, I can see why this um this must have just felt like a huge moment in your career you know your career on endgamer when this happened like um this was the game. This was like the moment. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know what a thing. I even like Spring Mario. No one likes Spring Mario. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're making me want to play it. Do you think um, to someone who has access to like a Wii now or the Switch version, would you recommend playing the Wii one or the Switch version? Like, how important uh, is the control input to like getting this game? The the the, the 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 Switch one's good, and you obviously get you know it's. 60 frames it's like seeing it kind of like unlocked which is obviously amazing um it's not quite like the 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 kind of pointer stuff isn't quite as natural you know the chunky remote hmm. was like a better fit for some of the pointer stuff than the than just using the joycon even though it all works absolutely fine um i really am fond of the like you know, it is a bit wanky, I know, but I really do associate the nunchuck. I think of the nunchuck like as Mario when I play it on Wii, and that's like psychologically quite a thing. You know, it's a, it feels very like, like it fits on that setup particularly well. Um, but it is still brilliant. I mean, on Switch, and it looks even better. I mean, just plugging in my Wii, it just my Wii looks so bad on television that I have. So, um, 
you know, I, I'll probably just play it on Switch now. But I've, you know, I know what the deal is. I've got those happy, happy Wii Remote uh, uh, memories. Mm. Um, the only thing I'm not too wild about in it, if there's one thing, is the Star Observatory. Um, I think it's quite a lot of padding between mm. missions. It's why two, because it just has a simpler map, kind of gets to them. It kind of gets to the fun a bit faster. Um, but yeah, that's maybe a discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I, I think I do agree with you. Actually, I remember like feeling like I was spending too much time wandering around that place. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, Good. it's not it's just not it's not as fun as a Peach's Castle to explore. There's no like secrets there. It's quite like oh god, it's just like meters you've got across to get back to another level rather than a a a fun place in its own right but Hmm. yeah i did put it at number three on my list and it's um yeah i mean i I am like god hand like i know there's a lot of emotional affection for that i can kind of understand that i am super intrigued what your number one is number one matthew it's halo three oh (laughs) would you you surprised by that yeah i that like I didn't even factor into my head that that you might be a big Halo Three fan. I don't know why. Yeah. So um, yeah, there is like uh, I, I would say maybe your list seems like slightly more personal than mine does. Like, which is fine. But I think that the games that were important this year did they were significant to me because I, I think in two thousand seven, and it's a time where I had like endless free time to play games, just nothing but time to just throw at games. Mm. I do miss that somewhat. When we did our best games of 2020 episode, it was like hampered by the limitations of what do I actually have time to play um, yeah. with the hours I've got. So yeah, this um, this is a time where I, I could throw like an entire weekend at playing um, a game and it wouldn't be a big deal. So Halo 3 though is is definitely the game from this year I've played the most. I've um, right. Me and my friend Andrew who have played this in co-op over and over and over again and probably for like an excess of 100 hours 200 hours i don't know like it for oh okay for like the last 14 years of our friendship there is no year has gone by without us playing at least the covenant level of this which is the um famous two scarab level um i always think oh, that yeah. halo is, is that-, that the one that starts in the plains uh yes that's right and then um yeah you sort of uh, like a you, you fly around for, for a bit shoot down some ships go into like a facility and then later on you get in like a, a like a, a warthog and you um you could you drive along the kind of the, this cliff edge and then in front of this big pyramid structure two scarabs drop down oh um, yeah, yeah 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 and it's like this big battle set piece i think that level is the best halo level in the entire series um, easy yeah, for sure yeah and to the point where i don't understand why 343 don't get that this is what halo should be like i would sacrifice the sort of visual fidelity and new enemies of um halo 4 and 5 to just have something that feels like this mm. it's uh it's just a, you are entering a war that's what it feels like there are the loads <laughs> of the unsc guys are flying around there's like um you know flying vehicles like um warthogs on the ground there's a, a real sense that a battle is going on um, mm. The scarabs are mighty things to behold. They're so simple to destroy. You just have to go to the back and break their little engine thing and they blow up. It's <laughs> so, so easy. But that's not the point. The point is that this is like the set piece where me and my friend, we restarted the checkpoint over and over again just to play with the possibilities of it. Like, what happens if we make both scarabs blow up uh, at once? What happens if we manage to make um, a scarab like 
um, fire at the other one? Will it destroy the back of it and blow it up? Um, what happens <laughs> if we like drive up this hill on a mongoose, the little um, jeep thingy, bijiks, and uh, try and land it onto like the roof of the um, the scarab? Like doing that kind of shit over and over again. What happens if we get the scarab to stand on our vehicle? The answer: it pings you into the highest possible point of the map, and then you collapse <laughs> from like basically space down onto the map and then die instantly it's wonderful <laughs> doing that while messing with halo's like uh, video editor tools oh so good yeah the multi it, like it like th- those were i think those scarab fights like it's a set piece no one would do that for real but that's like a real like living set piece it can go any number of ways mm. like that is a sequence that would be scripted in just about any other game yeah, uh, yeah, it's so good. This is like, it, and including like um, Bungie's own like Destiny. You know, you, there's nothing in Destiny that's anything like this. Destiny is a game about hoarding guns, and the guns feel really good. The shooting's really great, but this imaginative sandboxy set piece design that was always Halo's magic, um, mm. and it seems just so lost to them now. They seem to be like more invested in what the fuck's going on in Master Chief's head or going on with Cortana than like this shit, like. Loads of like <laughs> cool tools thrown into a level with loads of like big exciting enemies. Like that's what Halo is, and they just I, people just don't get it, and it, it's frustrating because yeah, to me this is like one of the best levels ever made. Um, I've played it over and over again, and like that's not even getting to Halo's multiplayer stuff. Halo 3's multiplayer was fantastic. Like you had this and Modern Warfare appear at the same time. This is just like the dominance of um, Xbox Live as a platform. Just um. Such a different kind of multiplayer experience. Obviously, Halo throws in the vehicles. Uh, the guns feel very different. Um, but yeah, I played mm-hmm. I played a load of this. You could also like do split screen on your console, but in the online multiplayer. Like, what a cool, what a cool thing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just uh, Halo Three, Matthew. Very good. What's your kind of relationship with this game? I so I'm not a mega Halo fan. Like again, it's a bit like the Valve stuff. Like I appreciate them more than I love them. I. I really like bit there are bits of Halo 3 where I think it really delivers. I I I think maybe I don't have that co-op relationship and so many of the people I know who do love Halo it comes from the co-op stuff that's where it comes alive. Mm. Um and having covered it on Xbox I just found I found like it's so dry as a fiction as a universe and there's so much emphasis on it. Um it just kind of I don't know. I found it all quite draining, to be honest. Um, I don't like. Yeah, I, I liked Halo. I did like Halo Three a lot. Um, I'm quite bad at the multiplayer. The multiplayer has never really clicked for me in the way that it has for some people. Um, you know, probably it feels it feels like old multiplayer in, in probably the way that like what I was saying about Modern Warfare felt like it ushered in like a new age, a new direction hmm. for like online shooters. Where Halo is maybe Halo Three is maybe like the pinnacle of old school multiplayer deathmatch you know it's very skill based in a way that i'm just shitty at and can't really do um i I don't think i can ever properly forgive halo 3 for that level that's basically set inside an arse Uh, (laughs) uh, if 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 the covenant is the best level ever cortana is the worst probably one of the worst levels in any games i think yeah um it's basically set in like an alien gut. I hate the flood, and that it's set in like the guts of like an a- of like an alien ship with all these like sphincter doors, and it's just like oh no, oh Cortana. <laughs> like I'd rather not save her. I'd be like, it's fine. I don't need her. Get me out <laughs> of this anus right now. 
Um, get me out of this anus and get me into a warthog. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's quite a scar. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, like I don't even know if this is necessarily the best overall Halo campaign. Um, I think it's got like the best like peaks of it. Um, but there's some encroaching nonsense with these um, later Halo games that I don't love. I actually don't think there's a single enemy type they added after um, Halo 1 that improves the game. I think they're all kind of like slightly lesser versions of what's already there. Like, I don't like the enemies that fly around in this. Loads and loads of flying enemies. They're kind of bullshit. The Brutes are okay with their jetpacks. They're not too bad. Um, they're pretty good. Um, but yeah, like I don't. I think there's actually... Not all of the campaign is as good as... Um, as uh, yeah, yeah, as the Covenant. The Covenant's just uh, a, a real lightning in a bottle kind of level, you know? Mm. Yeah. I feel like your number one game is actually your 14-year friendship with this Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> this Andrew. Yeah. This an- this Andrew figure. Uh, but that's that's a true heart pick, I think. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't even call myself, like, necessarily, like, a Halo expert. I just, I've just, like, lived this level over and over again. I know it. So well, two scarabs. We've got two scarabs. That dialogue has burned into my head. Um, <laughs> and then just like the amount of like the amount of those scenarios where he would get in an aircraft and fly away, I would be on the ground. I would throw a sticky grenade at his aircraft and it would blow up. And then he'd be like, "Yep, uh, restart checkpoint." And like that just became the language of our friendship. Like me sabotaging <laughs> his Halo experience. Um, so yeah, yeah, a true heartbeat. See, my 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 only friend for the last thirteen years has been Mario in Mario Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I think that's um, that's a great heartbeat too. Yeah, it, it's very specific. Like, I wouldn't put, I, I don't even know if Halo Two would have got my top ten from that from that year because I think that campaign's mm. pretty 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 naff overall. Um, but yeah, this was um, yeah, this is a big deal this year. I bought yeah, like I said, I bought this and Bioshock in the same year, and oof, that sums up what a strong year two thousand seven was. That those games came out within about two months of each other, just yeah. crazy town. Um, we did it, Matthew. We reached the end of the top ten. Oh, we did it! We did it! Yeah, that's another year ticked off. So two thousand eight, that's going to be another pretty huge year for um, for games when we do that podcast in a couple of months. For sure. Yeah. And we haven't actually planned what we're going to do for our next few episodes yet, have we? So that'll be a... We haven't, no, so it'll be a surprise. No, the only one that I know I want to do is the one I WhatsApped you about earlier this week. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, should I spoil the surprise? It's going to be a fun one, right? Well, I think we, we you can vaguely describe it as the trial of Sam Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a nice tool. As uh, tool? Teaser, sorry. That's a nice teaser. Um, yeah, people will like that one. And... Um, yeah, we've got a bunch of other themed stuff. We'll probably um, we'll probably do. It's a dry time for new releases, so um, yeah, we'll um, we'll we'll come back with some inventive episode ideas to tie in with mm. stuff going on this year, anniversaries and such. But Matthew, um, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Mr Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W Roberts on Twitter. If you want to follow the podcast, it's uh, Backpage Pod on Twitter. You can email us questions at backpagegames at gmail dot com. Uh, we've got a couple of questions this week that I'm actually going to save for another episode, um, just because uh, we'll wrap them all up together. But um, we always appreciate your correspondence. If you want to leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, that'd be appreciated too. After I mentioned that last time, we had a whole bunch of new reviews, which is greatly appreciated. It's always nice to just see your feedback on the podcast, what you like, what you don't like, etc. But thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Bye.